Fangoria has been at it for over 40 years and is better than ever. This gorgeous magazine is highly collectible and delivered right to your door four times a year, with each issue filled to the brim with articles exploring every nook and cranny of genre filmmaking past, present, and future, with all the most exciting journalists, filmmakers, horror know-it-alls, and occasional KingCast hosts to guide the way. This high-quality writing will only ever appear within the physical pages of the magazine, so if you want to join in on the fun, you'll need to subscribe. To do that, all you have to do is head on over to Fangoria.com and sign up. KingCast listeners, you're in the family, so we got a little nifty promo code for you. Y'all can save a whopping 25% off your order if you use the code KingCast at checkout. That is KingCast at checkout for 25 whole percent off. That's a quarter, folks, off of your entire order. Now, with all of that said, let's get on with the show. Hi. My name is Stephen King. Hello and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. Our guest this week really needs uh, no introduction, but as one of the KingCast's premier guests, true, true KingCast royalty. One might say. You think that's fair, Vespi? Oh, on the Mount Rushmore more than cast guests. More than earned, yes. We'll go ahead and do an intro anyway. She is the co-host of the highly popular Reading Glasses podcast, the James Beard award-winning author behind such titles as The Lady from the Black Lagoon, Girly Drinks, and this year's Girls Make Movies, and one quarter of the King Cass' own actual play RPG spinoff series, Shelbyville, which is currently in its second season over on our Patreon. Also, she would probably want me to tell you that she is very strong. She's here today to discuss a title we have never covered on the show before, Mm. Stephen King's 2002 miniseries Rose Red, which can currently be found on Hulu. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to the KingCast stage, Ms. Mallory O'Mara. Mallory, how are you doing today? Well, besides being very strong, I'm great. Happy to be back. And (laughs) I'm so thrilled because I've had dibs on this title for years, I think. Well, it wasn't uh, readily available until just a few months ago, and that really accelerated us doing this because i think it was the other option was to like watch it on youtube or order a dvd for like 40 dollars or some nonsense Mm -hmm. yeah so we we're finally getting around to it and um uh, that's good for a number of reasons there's a lot to discuss Mm. on this title and we're of course happy to have you back but it also means that people can stop uh asking us when we're gonna do it uh we did it we're here now we're doing it please stop bothering us bespy is crying himself to sleep Every night. I, I know and this is this is a, a a wonderful day that i can finally put this uh this whole ordeal behind me <laughs> the, i've got your back uh, guys i'm here speaking of uh ordeals mallory mm. uh, we uh spent some time together recently you came down to austin for uh my uh annual friends giving events but also we got to uh hang out with vespi and jacob a little bit had a shelbyville strategy session mm-hmm. um what would we collectively like to tell the people about that mm. that meeting that we had, what can we tell them? That's very exciting. Uh, <laughs> yes, almost. We nothing. had some yes. <laughs> really delicious Brussels sprouts, uh, and that we planned yeah. out season three. Yes. That is true. Season is three true. of Shelbyville. Yeah. Uh, Just in case form. anybody was confused, like season three of what? Shelbyville. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, we did that. We um we went underwater bowling. 
uh, is another thing we did. Mm-hmm. Um, and, we were cooling, uh, even though you made fun of me so much, and yet I still beat you. You listen to me. You we played two games. You won one of those games, and I won the other. So we were. Yeah, tied. but Scott, I know that numbers are really hard for you. But if you look at our overall scores, mine is higher than yours, which means no, that you're I getting won. Gr- you're getting granular. That's not that's not how we do <laughs> things. It's all or nothing. What what did you, I? You place made fun the of me for time? a week about what bowling. did you place the next time? Well, I don't. We don't have time to get into that whole ordeal with your candles <laughs> and bowling nonsense. <laughs> uh, but actually, no. I'm going to go ahead and tell that story. So <laughs> I told Mallory we were going to this underwater bowling alley, which she had expressed <laughs> interest in previously, I would add. And then she goes, wait a minute. It's not going to be one of those bowling alleys with the huge balls, right? And the with the, the huge balls with the holes in them. I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, I love that you're giving all your listeners some real insight into our very special friendship. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? And she said that um, she was used to her culture uh, had uh, raised her to believe that bowling involved um, very thin pins and a a much smaller ball with no holes in it that you just rolled on the ground. And I was like, that's not the commonly that's not the commonly accepted form of bowling. If you (laughs) ask somebody to think of what bowling is, they think of the, quote, huge balls with the holes in them. You know, they're not thinking this Amish wooden bowling nonsense. <laughs> Cracker barrel nonsense. Anyway, Can you yeah. give me one second to defend myself? So No, let me finish. No, and let me just no, no, no. This went let back me, and forth no. until she showed me a picture of the candle pin bowling. And I laughed so hard when I saw this absurd setup that, you know, I was entirely unfamiliar with. I almost pissed my pants. Uh, Mallory, your response. <laughs> So I'm from New England, as everyone who listens to Shelbyville knows. And where I grew up, we only had candle pin bowling. Shout out to the now defunct Pilgrim Lanes. And so when I moved out to California, I had to relearn how to bowl with like the giant bowling balls with the holes in them. And because Just call them I have bowling balls. Because <laughs> I know that there are other, there's different culture in certain places. I wanted to inquire to see, you know, <laughs> what kind of bowling there was in Texas. For all I know, you guys had like bowling balls, you know, the size of cars. I don't fucking mm-hmm. know. And I just want, I asked an innocent question and I have been lambasted for it ever since. So Scott spent like a week making fun of me for the fact that I only know how to candle pin bowl. And so it was all the sweeter when I beat you. You you didn't beat me. I think most people would agree if you play two games and one person wins one and one person wins the other, that's the end of the discussion. Vespi, can you weigh in, please? But well, I that would technically be a tie. Score. Yeah. yeah, it's a tie. It's a tie. Yeah, you, you, guys, you guys played to a draw. Um, but uh, I don't uh, I don't envy your chances should a rematch happen, Scott, because now now Mallory's going to be like she's going to make it her mission to mm-hmm. uh, to, to to practice. With the huge balls, <laughs> with the huge balls with the holes. Yes. Yeah, I don't think she is. She. It, it took a lot to. Uh, she. You were worried about the holes, right? I'm afraid like were... that my fingers are going to get stuck in the hole, and then I'm going to throw the ball, and it's going to rip my finger off. <laughs> a totally normal thing to be scared of. <laughs> I will point out, it happens every day in America. Children are losing their fingers. A man lost an entire arm last week, and you're mm-hmm. laughing. Anyway, so that was another thing we did. And um, 
what else did we do? Oh, well, we uh, we had Friendsgiving and on Friendsgiving, I've got I got to witness Mallory Mare high for the first time in my life. And <laughs> which I warned you was an ordeal in itself. Yeah, um, we had some edibles on hand, Bespy. And uh, this one. OK, so it's like uh, gummy worms, right? And each gummy worm has like 25 milligrams of mm. THC in it, right? Right. Um, and so I was like, well, here, why don't you take like a third of one? You know, it's like eight milligrams. She's like, no, I usually take like two milligrams. It's like, what? <laughs> so I was like, okay, well, bite like the, you know, but like, like a little fraction off the end. And bite that'll the be tip? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah circumcise tip. it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that'll be like one you milligram. You fucking wish, man. <laughs> and she did that. A couple hours goes by. It's like, hey, how are you feeling? She, and she said, uh, not really feeling it. It's like, well, it's probably because you just bit the tip. You know, you need, <laughs> you're going to need more than that. And uh, so she did another little bite, smooth sailing for another couple of hours. <laughs> and then we all, by this point in the day, we were all pretty uh, fucked up as we typically are at Friendsgiving. And uh, the decision was made to watch uh, a motion picture called Mac and Me, mm. which Mallory and I think a couple other people in the room had never seen before. And it was around that and time that Mallory on, took her we third dose. We cannot talk about why we watch this particular film at this at this mm. point in time. But right. people will understand at some point why we watch this particular film. You got to be more specific. It's a Shelbyville thing. People yes. are going to oh think God. that's a show thing. Anyway, right. so so Mallory takes her third dose of one milligram of edible. <laughs> <laughs> and and it kicked in like what 20 30 minutes into Mac and me yeah <laughs> like it's the worst like possible I was in fucking hell. time yeah she went from 0 to 1000 in like the blink of an eye it was incredible and she was terrified of, well you you tell it what what okay. was your experience watching mac and me on a whopping 3 milligrams of edibles <laughs> i mean the movie was already really horrifying to me because I had never seen it and I just didn't realize that's what they looked like. <laughs> so I'm already that really sounds, freaked out. Yeah, that'll do it to you. Yep. Yeah. And then, yeah, 20, 30 minutes in, all of a sudden I, I realize quite suddenly that I am not just high, but way too high. And well, I hold on, hold, on just, hold on just a second. Like, can you describe to people that haven't, there, there might be people like you up until about a week ago who have never seen Mac and Me. Can you describe the creatures in Mac and Me, please? What do they look like? I don't know. They look like sentient hot dogs. Like, <laughs> they look like, you know, I, I assume that in hospitals, like, they have some disposal system for all the foreskin that they circumcise. <laughs> if you opened up the container and looked in, that's what the, pe the aliens from Mac and Me look like. And I was, so, I was already so horrified. And then I... <laughs> realized midway through that I am way too high and I announced to the room of my dear friends guys I think I'm way too high to watch this and I tried to get out of it and Scott made me stay <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're in it for the long haul bud you know you were teasing it out all day we can't just divert an entire movie because three milligrams <laughs> into the stratosphere <laughs> yeah um, I just kept repeating what is happening over and over and over <laughs> Yeah, uh, Matt was uh, like she'd been kicked in the head by a horse or something. She was there was no there was no having a conversation with her by that point, you know, but that's the power of of Mac and me. 
<laughs> that that is a pretty cruel movie to watch with somebody when that shit's happening. Uh, well, again, <laughs> she'd been eating the the milligram the, the the edibles all day, and it hadn't been a problem. So, so you're saying Mac and Me is kind of what helped uh, trigger the the edibles into working. <laughs> Could be. Maybe Could we be. found the secret to <laughs> anytime if you if you take edibles and it's not working, and you're like this this ain't shit. All you got to do is load up Mac and Me, and bam, to the moon. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think to that's fair to say. To um, Mars, you might say. <laughs> you have also, or at least to McDonald's. Yes. <clears throat> you also recently finished uh, finished up work on your your new book, which I know you're not ready to talk about yet. But how do you? Which how do you makes feel? it a great thing for you to bring up on a podcast. Well, how do you how do you feel though? You feel excited? I mean, tired. Um, yeah. I literally yeah. handed it in mere hours before I flew out to Austin, <laughs> but right. it'll be out next summer. Um, I don't know when this episode's coming out. I might be able to talk next about week. it at some point soon. Oh, n- then no. Um, but yeah, I'm very thrilled. It's my next adult uh, nonfiction book, and it's going to be a blast. Very exciting subject matter, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. People will be very excited to, to hear what you're tackling this time around, uh, and mm-hmm. we are all well, we'll we'll uh, we'll have you back for that. That'll be a good excuse to have you back before next summer for that one. But uh, and we'll talk about it more then. But let's um, mm. let's move on to the subject at hand. Yeah. Yes. Oh hell yeah! This okay. Is so excited to talk about this miniseries. Yeah. So do you want to kick it off, uh, Mallory, by telling everybody kind of what this thing's about? No, that's your job. Oh, no, that's we always have the guests do job. that. There's oh, a is reason it? we ask. Yeah, there's a reason we ask the guests to do it. Oh, fine. Okay. Uh, Rose Red. <laughs> Is that reason that we don't want to do it, Scott? Yeah. No, it's, you yes. know, oh, I don't know why you're doing it. I'm doing it because when the guest tells you, like, what mm-hmm. the thing is about, they lay yes. out the bullet points that are important to them, and then you yeah. know what to focus on during the conversation. Oh, yeah, totally. Me, too. <laughs> yeah, that's why I like doing it, too. That's a yeah. great call. All right. So, Mallory, Mallory tell, us about, tell us about Rose Red. You've been Pathetic excited all about around. This. <laughs> so, Rose Red is a three-episode miniseries uh, that came out in 2002, written by Stephen King, and it is about a gigantic haunted mansion in the middle of Seattle that has been, quote, dormant for many decades after a series of disappearances there, and there is a psychologist uh, who want, is obsessed with Rose Red and wants to, quote, wake up the house so she assembles a ace team of psychics and uh psychically um powerful people and wants to bring them into the house over i think it's memorial day weekend maybe it's labor day weekend one of those holiday weekends yeah um and um wants to wants to kick the house back into life and you find out the history of the house and obviously things don't go very well for them in there and it's good time is had by all I think that's pretty fair. Pretty fair assessment. Oh, God. Where do we even start here? Do we want to start with the Shirley Jackson of it all? Do we want to talk Mm. about the origins of what this thing originally was and what it became? Do we want to... Why don't you start there and then I Mm. will Shirley Jackson all over you. Okay. Oh, thank you. Um, (laughs) Here's here's something that I did not know about this miniseries. Vespi, I don't know if you knew, but I know that... Over the course of us doing this show, we we tend to talk about Steven Spielberg pretty frequently. Mm-hmm. You know, we consider him to be King's uh, twinner in in King parlance. But 
we know that they worked together on this project for a few years um, in the 80s that they were trying to get this uh, like a, a thing where King would script and Spielberg would direct off the ground and it never it never really got anywhere. And all this time, I thought like we just didn't know what that fucking project was, because I remember we like having talked about it on the show and it's just like we may never know. It turns out it's uh, it's Rose Red. Um, Turns out you're just dumb. Yeah. (laughs) And not, well, I hadn't pulled up, I hadn't pulled up the Wikipedia page for Rose Red until that point. You know, it's not like I host a Stephen King podcast and do (laughs) research. And that, that's what happened. Like Stephen King pitched this idea to, to Spielberg. It was a feature then it wasn't a, a mini series. Um, so a little more condensed version, uh, of, of what's available on Hulu right now. And, um, Spielberg wanted, long story short, Spielberg wanted more set pieces. King wanted it to be creepier and spookier. And, you know, they never really landed on a version of the script that they were entirely happy with. So eventually they both agreed amicably to just say, you know what? It's not working out. They go their separate ways. Then some years went by and Stephen King kept thinking about it and went back to Spielberg and said, hey, look. I'd really like to do something with this. If you're not going to use it, can can I buy back the rights uh, to it from you? Because I guess mm. this was all happening under Amblin or whoever. Yeah. And so Spielberg sold him the rights back uh, and King expanded a little bit. I think it's obvious when you watch it, the ways in which it was expanded. <laughs> yeah. And um, turned it into a miniseries. And that's what Rose Red is. And what's interesting to me is, so neither of you had seen this until we decided to do this episode, correct? I, I watched it when it aired, but I couldn't, I couldn't tell you, and I'm, this isn't me trying to like worm my way out of it. I couldn't tell you if I finished it. I know I, I watched it when it aired. I don't know if I watched every episode. Um, uh, so it was, it was like new watching it for me, but I know that when it, when it aired, uh, I did, I did tune in at least for the beginning. Scott? Yeah, I hadn't seen it. I had always been told it was bad. And Ugh. it it came Tell me out where you live. It came out during a period where like I had a lot of other shit going on in my life and like sitting down to watch a miniseries was just not in the cards. And when I would ask people about it, it was like, yeah, I didn't really like it and you know, it so it was in my mind it was like a thing that wasn't necessarily worth going out of my way to uh track down right and then then, add on to the fact that it was really hard to find for a long time and right you know i I don't want to put in the effort to watch something that i'm like i've been told by three or four different people like that they didn't like it you know um and i was i was very pleasantly surprised by this thing i think it's i think it's um uh it, it reminds me in terms of uh quality and uh just the depth of the material of storm of the century mm. a lot it's got that it's got so it's got that early aughts sort of sheen to it you know there's no getting around that yeah, but, yeah. um i thought i had a, i had a great time with it i have i have notes for sure but overall yeah this is a really mm. solid piece of work yeah i really see, love the opening oh go, go ahead i was gonna say see um 
I am among, and maybe it's because of my age. I was like 11 or 12 when this came out. And I am among a group of millennials who were completely fucking obsessed with this movie. I saw it when mm. it aired. I got it on DVD. I watched it a ton when I was a teenager. Uh, in bird watching, there's a term spark bird for like the first bird that you see that gets you interested in bird watching. For mm-hmm. me, this was my spark haunted house. I, uh, If you listen mm. to my show, you know that I'm completely obsessed with haunted house books. I'm completely ha- obsessed with haunted houses in general. In this miniseries, Rose Red was the reason I became completely wow. fucking obsessed with haunted houses. Also, it's funny rewatching it because I see so much. Like this movie affected me, or this miniseries affected me so much more than I realized. And I'm like, oh my god, I can trace so many of my like weird niche interests all the way back to Rose Red. Is that something you were aware of before this rewatch, or that's something this rewatch, like some sort of knowledge that unlocked in you? It was this rewatch in particular because I was taking studious notes when I was watching so, it, and I. Ooh. Okay, so <laughs> what are keep like? Ready. In, so elaborate, like what in in what ways? What how is this? How is this one really stuck with you specifically? Well, haunted houses are very appealing to me specifically because there's always a backstory. Well, not always, but in my opinion, all good haunted house stories, like the reason you're reading it or watching it is not just for the spooky stuff that's happening, but for why it happened. You want the story, Mm -hmm. like, like the crux of many haunted house stories is finally unlocking, whether it's because you're hearing it from someone or you're going to the library and doing research or whatever, but you find out what terrible thing happened in that house. And there's a scene in the first episode of Rose Red where the psychologist is basically giving a PowerPoint presentation to her (laughs) psychic team about all the things that happened in Rose Red. And that might be boring to some people. That shit makes me come. Like I was like, Oh my God, this is why I'm a history writer. Cause just like seeing the scene where she's just standing in front of a giant, like, display explaining the history of what happened in this house is so compelling it is mesmerizing to me and it made me realize like oh that's why i love haunted house stories that's why i have the career that i do is because Mm. that stuff is everything to me (laughs) thanks nancy travis um (laughs) it's interesting it's interesting that that's your take on it because um a lot of times in horror movies or particularly haunted house movies you know when they give the backstory um it can also it, it can often be like um, kind of tortured you know they have to seek out like a, a professor and he's he, like warning them away and it's kind of mm-hmm. it's very tropey right so i'm i'm curious what uh some can you think of other examples that you're particularly fond of of like you know the delivery of that kind of a scene or you know or a Haunted houses where you're uh, uh, particularly fond of the backstory to that house. Uh, one of my favorites in recent memory is the new book that came out January of this year by Grady Hendrix, How to Sell mm-hmm. a Haunted House. And there, mm-hmm. it is my top, top, top book of the year. And there is a scene where the delivery of what happened in that house and what happened to the source of all of the haunting is delivered like in this scene in a trailer park where this like kind of psychic woman is like getting information about from the dead. And it's like an immediate download of what happened and why it happened. And it is not only terrifying, but it is just so good. It is so satisfying to me. Like when any, I know it's so tropey, but if you get a couple 
or a grieving family and they move into a house that is old and has a history <laughs> and they can't move out because they're fucking poor and they end up going to the library to research like <laughs> i am hard as a rock i love right. a library research montage scene i just there's something about the finding out the backstory finding out the history that is just deeply deeply satisfying to me hmm. i'm curious about uh you know, I'm not going to ask about Haunting of Hill House because, you know, that's going to be a cornerstone of this conversation. I know we want to have about Shirley Jackson, but another haunted house that I want to ask about, ask you about in relation to this uh, series is House of Leaves. Hmm. And oh, interesting. I know you and I have talked about House of Leaves like in passing a few times, but I don't think you and I have ever actually like, sat down and had a conversation about it. And I'm, we can right I'm now. Curious. Yeah, I, well, that's why I'm bringing it up. Like, so, you, you know, the 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 way the house shifts in this story and the way it, it can expand and, and do these things. This is two years as, after House of Leaves came out. Stephen mm. King is in House of Leaves as a character at mm. one point. You know, it's not um, I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility that. He sort of added a little bit of that in, maybe as like uh, kind of a, a nod back to uh, Daniel Levski. Uh, I actually you know he read that. that book. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that the the idea in Rose Red of the house that is constantly expanding uh, actually comes from the real life Winchester house, which no, 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 shares... no. I don't mean I don't mean the add ons with construction. I mean, when the house is literally changing itself in the like once you get into the third episode and stuff. Yeah, but I, I I mean, maybe there's House of Leaves in there, and I definitely think they share the same DNA, but in my mind, it come, especially considering uh, the backstory in, mm. in Rose Red of, you know, the wealthy woman who's very unhappy, I think that is much more similar to the Winchester House in California. It's, def- it's definitely Winchester House. Um, I, I see a little more House of Leaves in it than you do, which is fine, but what do you think of House of Leaves? Because that's another like big time haunted house novel. I mean, I love House of Leaves. There's a particular scene in that book. I don't know if I'm allowed to I guess it's not a spoiler for a what almost 30 <laughs> 20 year years. old 20 yeah. year old book. <laughs> uh there's a scene in House of Leaves where one of the main characters is like down deep in like the the I don't want whole tunnel whatever it is and he is lighting like on the his, platform. No, like when he like goes deep down into like the spiral staircase and he is lighting his way by lighting, like reading, he's reading a book or reading a journal and lighting the the page that he just read on fire. And Mm -hmm. I think about that scene once (laughs) a week, at least, Hmm. you know, there's a lot of really arresting imagery in that book. And I think it's fantastic. And if you are a person who has always wanted to read the house of leaves and has been very intimidated, because it is a very intimidating book to read. There's three different narratives happening in a very unusual manner. Uh, Mm -hmm. The best advice I ever heard was someone said, just read it and take what you need and leave behind the rest. And I think that's, it's such a great way to read that book. I've actually read it twice. And I mean, it, 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 I think is one of the most influential haunted house books of the modern era. For sure. You see, you see elements of house of leaves in movies, TV shows. I mean, I I've seen it across media since, since that book came out. That was, I think house of leaves kind of has a reputation now as sort of a hipstery thing. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's often used as a punchline because of the amount of like footnotes and, you know, weird typographical shit that's going on in it. But like, 
that thing is a powerhouse. And to your yeah. point about just reading it and leaving behind stuff, I've I've read House of Leaves I think four times, and every single time I've well, read it's it, not a it's, contest, Scott. It's felt I, I notice completely different things because there is stuff that I'll do that with. Like I think I skip most of the Johnny Truant shit the first time I read mm-hmm. it. You know, like most of that is happening in the footnotes. And it was like, after a while, I was like, I just want, I want the, the Nabitson record. Like I want to be focused on this right now. And then the next time I ran it, I like paid more attention to that. You can do that with that book. It is, mm-hmm. it's a serious piece of work. Vespi, have you read House of Leaves? Yeah, no, I, I read it um, after we had Danielewski on the show. Um, uh, I tried after? to read it before. <laughs> Well, I tried to I tried to read it before, but it was one of those things where it's like when he agreed to come on, we had like a week or something. Yeah, was, you can't quickly. We didn't read have House a long time, and I'm like, oh, that's great. You know, I'll just knock this out, not really understanding the legacy of it. And when I opened it up, and I'm like, there's like seven different fonts and colors on the first page. <laughs> like, what what is this now? This is like I'm, I picked up a <laughs> like a used school textbook that has all the notes in the margins and shit. And I'm just like, this is uh, not what I was expecting at all. Uh, and I think I probably only got about 50 pages or so into it before the um, the the chat with Daniel Levski, which I was more than willing and happy to let you lead all the House of Leaves talk. Sure. On uh, since you knew it so well, um, but yes, and I've, I of course kept it after and and, and uh, finished it. And it's, I, I think what's interesting about what you're talking about is like how they they kind of like take the haunted house out of that Shirley Jackson and Richard Matheson era thing. And he, he does. How something... dare you put those two well, names in the same sentence? How dare you? I'm just well, sitting I back mean, and watching. It, it, for, for a Rose red conversation, you got to acknowledge that like, it's not Matheson's legend of hell house is just as much of an inspiration. I think uh, to Rose red. Um, Except it, it's... Matheson's hell house was inspired by Hill house. Of course. But like in, instead of having like, you know, one character who's psychic, you know, going into this thing, you know, that, that's, that's the whole, I don't know. There's a tone to tell hell. I've, I've never read the yeah, book. I've only seen the movies. It, but, it's misogyny. But, well, yes, but uh, I mean, Matheson is also, you know, highly influential to Spielberg, highly influential to King. So, you know, sure. so it doesn't I'm, surprise I'm basically me. Shirley whenever, Jackson's wife guy. <laughs> it doesn't surprise me that, uh, you know, that, that Spielberg and King were, we're working on this together with that is kind of a, um, you know, a cornerstone uh, to it because it does, it's not, it, it's a little bit more pulpy than Shirley Jackson. This, this, uh, this story, this does uh, to sure. me, this feels way more in, in the hell house zone where it's like, we're going to really kind of fuck you up and we're going to have all these random crazy monsters. And, and by fuck you up, you know, we mean to- we're going to fuck you up. Yes. Come no. up. Yes. People get fucked by ghosts <laughs> in Hell House. Oh, yes. yeah. Oh, yeah, they do. Um, well, before, wait, before we leave this part of the conversation behind, yes. I and Scott, I don't even know if you know this, but there is a lot of really interesting shared DNA between House of Leaves and another shared property that we mm. love is Twin Peaks. <laughs> if you read the two books that Mark Frost wrote before the return came out, there's a lot of similarities between the way that he talks about the place of twin peaks and the way like, you know, at the end of haunting uh, end of house of leaves, there is a really interesting section section where he's talking about the actual land where the house mm. was built on mm-hmm. that part of the book is 
almost identical to the way that Mark Frost writes about the land of Twin Peaks. That's interesting. I thought, I thought you were going to say he was describing the lodge that way. No, it's a uh, is one of it's honestly one of my favorite parts of House of Leaves. Again, I love a backstory. So uh, there's a part where he you know talks about how House of the the that area of land before it was a house was like a creepy hole in the ground that like indigenous people avoided and that's exactly how mark frost writes about places in twin peaks in the books hmm. Hmm. very interesting those mark frost books worth reading a hundred percent but also again i'm completely fucking obsessed with twin peaks so well yes if you are like that absolutely read them anyway well, i'll tell you why I, well i had i held off because lynch isn't involved right and i thought that it was like I don't know how that's going to influence how I feel about the return. So you know who you you could have asked? David Lynch. (laughs) Your best friend, Mallory (laughs) (laughs) O'Mara. Well, now I know I can loop back. Um, Okay. So let's, what else would we like to talk? I feel like I'm dominating this. Eric, you want to, you will never dominate. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, What I would Uh, like to talk about is, the novelization of this before we really get into where oh, this concept do. came from uh yeah, yeah. while the while the this I, th- I think even before it came out i think while it was still in production even the producers of rose red hired uh an uh, unknown author to write a essentially a prequel because in the book or in the in the miniseries you know, it's in modern day, but they talk a lot about, you know, the woman who built the house and her story. And they hired a writer to basically write the di- her diary. It's called The Diary of Ellen Rimbauer. And when it came out, it, they actually didn't name the author. It was a really interested kind of like annotated book. It was like The Diary of Ellen Rimbauer, but with like annotations by the psychologist who is the main character of Rose Red. And mm. they kind of like alluded to the fact that Stephen King wrote it, but he didn't. And this is this was the first novelization I ever read. And when mm-hmm. I was a little dumb teenager, I, I loved it. I've never read it. So uh, illuminate us. I mean, it's really interesting to see, you know, sort of a reversal, especially of a lot of the stuff that you talk about on this show, where it was Stephen King wrote a screenplay that was then novelized by someone who wasn't him. <laughs> right. Yeah, um, that's very strange. That's really unusual. They didn't do that for Storm of the Century. They just released it, the script. Yeah, as a yeah teleplay or whatever. Yeah. And it was really popular. It, it was like a best-selling book. It was really big at the time, which is funny because it's very difficult to find now. Um but I loved it. I thought it was great. It's very, it's very spicy. I mean, the miniseries is quite spicy, but a lot of the elements that are alluded to in the miniseries, especially like the queer and lesbian elements are like made quite clear in the book. Um, but I reckon, I mean, if you were a Rose Red freak like myself and you watched it when you were a kid or you watched it now and you really liked it, I would recommend reading it. I cannot speak to how it holds up to modern sensibilities. Again, I read it when I was like 14, um, but I really enjoyed it at the time. I can't find my copy. I used to have a copy and in one of my bazillion moves, it has disappeared. Scott stole it. One of these. Would not uh, be surprised. So, something you, you've touched on here that I, I'm curious to have Vespi about because mm. you and I talked about this off air. Was um, the uh, the the queer slash LGBTQ like elements of this, namely uh, Sakina and Ellen's uh, relationship, right? Which you know, Mallory was telling me about the Diary of Ellen Rimbauer, and she was like, "Yeah, it's very explicitly like that they're they're hooking up." Like, did you get that from the miniseries? Like, yeah, 
Like, I definitely, like, I, I thought that was clear. Was that clear to you? That or am was... I just really horny and on the lookout at all times? <laughs> yes. I know it uh, True. The answer is yes. The, the answer is yes to all the above. Yes. Um, yeah, D, all the above. I'm circling that. It's, um... D. Yes, for sure. It's... I think that it becomes more clear, like, right at the end, where at the beginning it just feels like they're kind of... Uh, BFFs or whatever, but I, I guess you also kind of have to watch a lot of stuff. BFFs. Well, you know, where it's just like they really liked each other, and the husband didn't didn't like the one, and maybe it's because he was racist, maybe it's because she was the help or whatever. But then once it becomes more apparent that it's like, oh, maybe maybe it's because they they uh, yeah he sensed a relationship with the uh, mm-hmm. between his wife and this and you know and this hired hand or whatever. But um, hired. Uh, uh, well. well. Yeah. <laughs> so to speak sakina so to is speak. her name again for the record yes. i think i mean yes by the end of it i was like for sure of course especially when you get like the, the the mummified versions of them and they're just like standing in the shadows you know pretty much holding hands you know making fun of the the the, the weird one psychotic mom as she's tied on the floor and shit you know it's like <sighs> you, you get you get those those moments where where it's like yeah i think that there's probably more there to that to that relationship in life and in death. Romantic. Mallory, I know you are you are itching to talk about the Shirley Jackson of this. And yes. and so am I. We in addition to um uh, watch it, well, you were revisiting Rose Red and I I watched it. We also watched Shirley the other day, which is a movie I hadn't seen, which is a movie about I do Shirley love bullying Jackson. you into watching movies. You didn't mm-hmm. have to bully me into anything. I wasn't bullied. <laughs> no, I, I, I didn't have to, but I just did it for fun. <laughs> okay. So, you know, I know I know you're excited about this. I want to cede the floor to you completely, like just school us. I, I think that I'm willing to bet that Vespi's the amount of knowledge Vespi has about Shirley Jackson is about on par with what I had uh, up until, you know, a few days ago. Oh, so I, 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 I wrote, I wrote my PhD on Shirley Jackson, actually. So um, you what? Oh, I didn't know I was supposed I, to be calling I, you Doctor Doctor yeah. Vespi. Yeah, oh. yeah. I, I wrote my PhD on Shirley Jackson, but I'll I'll, I'll let yes. you guys figure it. Go ahead and go ahead and, and go for it. Yeah. So neither of you have read Shirley Jackson. Yes, I have. I, I read uh, Haunting of Hill House, and I read The Lottery. I read yeah, those both read around the, the same times. Yeah. yeah, around the same time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think okay. that's it. Yep. Still a little shameful, but not totally shameful. Sure. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the the legacy of Shirley Jackson and the haunting of Hill House in the horror genre and especially haunted houses cannot be overstated. It is one of the most influential works, if not the most influential. Um, as I said earlier, even Matheson's Hell House is essentially a retelling of haunting of hill house which is why it makes me mad for you to say their names <laughs> in the same sentence because i mean if the the elements of rose red the elements of hell house are all the same you know it's a psychologist coming in to uh, a haunted house with a team you know the the all the roles are very very similar um Honestly, what's really cool is I, I'm excited to be able to talk about it on this show because there's so much of Jackson and Stephen's King Stephen King's work as a whole. Mm, I mean, mm-hmm. this is obviously the biggest one because it's his reimagining of Haunting of Hill House. But Jackson overall has a massive legacy. You can see it in Carrie. You can see it in The Shining, Firestarter, which is actually dedicated to her, Gerald's Game, Rose Matter. One of the staples of Jackson's work is outer manifestations of inner turmoil. Mm, And it's really fun to watch Stephen King reinterpret it because a lot of Jackson's horror is very psychological. 
Like mm-hmm. there's no rattling change the chains. There's no monsters in Shirley Jackson. It's very much in the mind. And Stephen King takes a lot of that stuff and brings it out into reality, which is what Rose Red is, is all about. And it's really fun. I mean, I, I do think that, and Scott, we've talked about this a little bit in the third episode, it gets a little overplayed because mm-hmm. by the time, you know, you see so like he brings out and you see these, these ghosts and they are interacting with the characters. So by the time the third episode, you're like, yeah, I've seen all these people. They look like beef jerky. I'm not really scared by them anymore, but it is a really, I think it's a really fun reimagining of Haunting of Hill House. Uh, it's, there's so many story connections between the two and honestly of all Stephen King's work this is just like such a profoundly feminine story you know Rose Red is really just about a woman's inner struggle manifesting as a haunting that terrifies everybody you know she feels like she doesn't have power uh and this house has become the embodiment of the woman who lives in it there's all this like some of the the narration in this book like or in this in this mini series like the voiceovers that the psychologist does like some of the lines are just absolute fucking bangers Howlers. yeah there it's incredible and like you know just the story of a woman who feels trapped in a home literally but also feels like trapped in her domestic role making her house the embodiment of her anger a very you know i'm not trapped in here with you you're trapped in here with me sort of scenario it's a very gothic idea and it's it's really fun to 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 see it get get kingized i guess right what do you think shirley jackson would make of king's writing um i mean she probably would think it was not quite gay enough (laughs) <laughs> fair enough fair enough well i mean early in early in king's uh career i think he was taking a task for not always being strong with his female characters despite leading off with carrie you know which yeah. we uh-huh. you know we know how to has a, a touch of tabitha in it we've talked a, a, a lot on the show before about how certain king works seem to be reactions to um, some of the criticism that, that have been leveled at him over time. I think Elevation is one of those those novels. I think hmm. uh, I think Gerald's Game, Rose Matter, and uh, what's the one I'm forgetting? Insomnia. Yes, Insomnia. I think those are all of a piece. Uh, I think those are reactionary to yeah. uh, to a certain degree. Yeah, um, yeah. It seems like he. I mean, this is pure speculation, but it seems to me that he wanted to become better at writing female characters at a certain point. I don't think the Stephen King that started his career was capable of writing a novel like, say, Lisey's story, for instance. And I think he had to write some other books to get there. I guess that's that's kind of what I'm thinking. Like, right. would he would would Shirley Jackson approve of like what would Shirley Jackson make of Gerald's game? I feel like she would she would like that just on the limited uh uh, basis that I understand, Shirley Jackson. Do you think? Do you think that's correct? Are you saying that because it's horny? Yeah, mostly. And it's <laughs> it's, and, but it's also dealing intensely with trauma, you know. And you know, you talk about Jackson's, uh, you know that that essentially trauma is causing these manifestations. I mean, that's King's flipping that on its head with the Moonlight Man in in Gerald's game. Like, you don't know if it's because she's going crazy, if she's going crazy because of her trauma or situation, and if this person in the room is even real. So 
I would imagine she would have something to say about that one more than, say, Insomnia or Rose Matter. Oh, I mean, I think you can absolutely draw a line between uh, Gerald's game and a lot of Shirley Jackson's work, particularly her novel Hangs a Man, which is interesting to bring up because, you know, I, I just had you watch Shirley in that that book is or that movie is the very, very fictionalized version of Shirley Jackson writing that novel. Mm-hmm. Um, you should tell people what Shirley is. Shirley is, I mean, you would probably call it a biopic and it's not. It's it's based as, off I, a fictional fictional version. <clears throat> it's based off the book uh, Shirley by Susan Merrill, which is a fictionalized story of the writing of that book. So it's like an adaptation of a fictionalized <laughs> yeah, version of, yeah. of her life. Yeah, and it's um, it's sort of like you know, I don't know what the exact time frame is, but think of it. Have you seen it, Vespi? I have not. Okay, think of it as like, you know, uh, a year in the life, you know, it's while she's writing this book. And, you know, there's this uh, her and her husband who's played by um, not Shea Weigham, Michael Stuhlbarg um, are together and they have a very unique relationship. Um, uh, The the sexual dynamics, I would say, in this relationship are, are 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 pretty interesting. They appealed to me. And then <laughs> they get involved with uh, a younger couple who create who create complications. I'll say that. And so there's it's sort of this like psychosexual sort of <laughs> fictionalized. It's it's a lot of things all at once. Uh-huh. It's really interesting though, and, well. and I had a I had a great time watching it. I think that. You know, I don't know uh, how much uh, wide appeal something like this has, but like I was yeah, saying on Twitter after I saw in it, the world. <laughs> a lot of what? Because there's a lot of cowards in the world. Sure. I, I just think, um, you know, uh, this movie is on a very particular wavelength. It's kind of a horny wavelength. It's kind of dark. It's a little like a little psychologically fucked up. And it, it, it's also about, you know, the the creative process and the and the the sexual dynamics of a relationship where. Well, particularly when you're involved with a writer. And so I, I think if any of that kind of sounds like something you might be interested in, definitely check out that movie. Mm. If you're like, don't fuck writers, folks, we're all insane. <laughs> yeah, just <laughs> podcast hosts, people. That's what we're doing in 2024. Yeah, it's the new uh, the new trend. Yeah, the new hot thing. Yeah, it's interesting we're talking about this because again, the 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 film Shirley, which was my favorite movie of the year when it came out, is a a, a fictional version of her writing Hangs a Man, and Hangs a Man is about a young woman who is assaulted right before she goes to college, and her she pretends that it doesn't happen, and her stifling the processing of that thing that happened to her uh manifests in a lot of ways and sends her sort of into madness um which again you can you know uh connect to a lot of stephen Mm -hmm. king's work um and you can connect to to rose red Hmm. yeah and certainly gerald's game i see the connection there yes um honestly there's just so there's so much great stuff in this something i really want to touch on is the setting this is one of those movies where you can tell they're like hey we spend a bunch of fucking money on these sets and you're gonna fucking see them <laughs> right right 
Um, well, it just in a in a broader term too. Like I love movies where the haunted house isn't in some you know uh, private land that's beyond you know 40 acres past the wood line or whatever i love the fact that this thing is just right smack dab in the middle of fucking seattle right it's awesome awesome. you get all these looks like a city street yeah yeah you get all these establishing shots and shit of uh of um uh, rose red and it is like it's right like you said it's like you, the, a cab pulls up to the front of it it's not like like it's this <laughs> you know just hidden away thing and and uh you know i don't know and i guess maybe it's some of it you know mallory you mentioned the uh, winchester mystery house uh you know inspiration you know maybe i love that so much because i grew up in the bay area and we take field trips to the winchester house you know and i've been in the you know there i've I've done those tours and have you know heard the stories of like oh we keep we were led a tour once and somebody you know found a discolored brick and pressed it and a new room was discovered and so i spent the entire tour trying to figure out try to pressing you know, every party brick my in ass sight <laughs> yeah any uh, uh wood plank that seemed to be slightly <laughs> raised or lowered past its uh, its brothers yeah yeah um i don't know there's just something great in that house much like this is it's not like you know it's on some private estate it's it's just in the middle of the city so i don't know i I really love that aspect you know that that was one of the things that grabbed me uh like right up front you know with the with this because i i guess in my mind i'd I'd like just had built up as is it was more of a a haunting scenario where like they kind of go off into this grand estate or, you know, like a Flanagan, you know, thing where it's one of the, the, the haunted building is kind of off on its, its own secluded thing where it can be ignored. Not the fact that it's in the middle of this bustling metropolis that, you know, thousand people walk by every day, you know, and it's this psychic nightmare. It's just sitting there, you know, sleeping, waiting to be woken up, you know, I was intrigued to learn. And because we're talking about the house that, um, you know, it's mostly sets. They they built 200,000 square feet of sets. Jesus. That's f- f- that's crazy, you know? Yeah. Um, the facade out front, which I assumed was a facade, is not a facade. It's a, a real place. And the entire first floor, they spent half a million dollars restoring it to what it originally looked like. Oh, wow. And, yeah. and filmed in it. Uh, the rest of it is sets. So this thing wasn't fucking cheap. Like they they no. poured a lot of money into this thing. And I it, it especially comes through in the sets. Like I'm thinking of the greenhouse area. Like that mm-hmm. thing, the fucking ceilings in there like look like they're 40 feet tall. It's crazy. Yeah. Are the two of you familiar with the concept of reading doorways? No. No. Uh, it's a concept that was developed by a librarian named Nancy Pearl. And if you change just one thing, it's also all very applicable to film as well. And it's this idea that there are four different doorways into a story. Uh, it's it's meant for books, but again, you can apply it to film. And that's setting mm. plot, character, and language. Um, for film, you could swap language for style. And mm. it's basically what 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 is your doorway into a story what hooks you what draws you in what keeps mm-hmm. you there and we talk about it a lot on my show uh and i really think that if you had to to categorize rose red this would be a setting story like mm. through and through you know this house is so evocative uh the mirror library the perspective hallway the tower the solarium greenhouse situation mm. the upside um, down room yeah yes i mean like like you said eric it, this is definitely a story where the the setting is basically a character 
Mm-hmm. And mostly because the house is, you know, a manifestation of Ellen Rimbauer's frustrations with her life. Um, right. But it's really fun to start to look at the media that you like and kind of categorize it by doorway. Mm-hmm. And this made me realize that setting is one of my doorways when I watched it when I was a teenager, because right. I just I love I love that. I love an evocative place. Sure. What, I think the character work is the thing that. I think you're right. I got hooked by the setting, but the character work, particularly in that very first episode, I think the the series loses steam like pretty quickly once you get into episodes two and three. Uh, But uh, that very first episode, when I think one of my favorite scenes in the entire thing is when all the psychic people are, are out at the bar before the night before they go to the thing and they're just sitting around a table going, "Okay, so what's your thing? Oh, you, you're you're a free writer. Like, okay, what's your thing? I can see the past, so I can touch something and see, you know, stuff. And they're all just like just chilling out, having beers, you know, getting to know each other and hanging out. Like, for whatever reason, that that was the scene where I was just like, holy shit, there's more to this than just this is Stephen King's, you know, haunting of Hill House. You know, uh, I don't know. I, n- you know, not not saying that there isn't depth. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I fear, hear the the knives being sharpened by Mallory. Uh, there, but you know, I just just in terms of of like this isn't just King, you know, doing kind of um, you know just a, a a base level broad strokes. You know, we're gonna take the the scenario and and uh, uh, you know make a mini series out of it. You know, just that that's where I was like, oh, there was actually some thought put into these characters and and you know really wanting to differentiate themselves and and um, uh, yeah, no, I think you know. In terms of that, like, I really love the character work uh, amongst the psychic group, I think. Well, I'd love to know, we haven't even touched on the performances here and the characters, right. which I agree with you, or it's a really strong piece of this. And the mm-hmm. fact that it stars Queen of Queens, Melanie fucking Linsky. Like, there's just, the performances in this in this show are almost better than they should be. <laughs> Definitely. And she has a very thankless role. She she plays the the older sister of the super psychic kid that's the real key to unlocking the, you know, Rose Red and, and you know, uh, reinvigorating the psychic energy and shit. She's like mini Carrie that, you know, she's the older well, sister Well, she's, she's Eleanor. This Annie, it, like, one of the central ideas in haunting of hill house is that the main yeah. character eleanor is sort of powering hill house right. and right. wants to stay there feels at home there like one of the key very scary scenes in that is like come home eleanor written yeah. on the wall and what looks like blood annie is that to rose red but you know on steroids you know she's right. super psychic she uh has all these telekinetic abilities and um you know, and that's a big theme in Rose Red is that the house wants Annie to stay. And Annie's a little right. bit conflicted about whether or not she wants to because, you know, the real world treats her like garbage. Her parents suck. The, really, the only yeah. person she has is Melanie Linsky, who's her older sister. And like, why not stay at this like funky, weird house where she can do cool stuff? <laughs> and, and she does like, you know, the reason why I mentioned Carrie is like the very, you know, the first thing that we see of her is that, yeah, as a kid, she's bitten by the neighbor's dog and she is real pissed off at him at the neighbors. And, and, you know, the neighbors are a bunch of old, you know, grumpy grandparents. So fuck him anyway. Uh, but she decides to do <laughs> exactly <laughs> Well, she decides to do exactly what, um, what Carrie white did when she was a baby with, you know, she's like, instead here she's drawing where I think Carrie just summoned the, the rock storm and whatever. Well, the um, rock storm is also from Hill house. If I remember correctly. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there you like, go. Maybe like he's share. just nodding. I think, I think he's <clears throat> nodding to his own influence then. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. I like Carrie. Carrie's it, it's, 
they shot that scene for Carrie. Did you know that? And yeah, that, and then they decided to, to scrap they, it. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. scrapped it because it looked like like pebbles or rain. Like <laughs> right. it didn't, it didn't, it just didn't work visually. Yeah. So they they took it out of the movie, but it it was originally in there. Um, but that itself was a nod to Hill House, and I think it's this kind of opens up to a, a different pathway in the conversation, which is that this thing is also amongst everything else we've talked about, just like a greatest hits collection of Stephen King tropes. Okay. <laughs> right. Just about to bring that up. It's something that you hits. and I were talking about like last yes. week. There's yeah. so many that he is trotting out all his favorite tropes. We got autistic kids. We got overbearing moms. We uh-huh. got uh haunted houses, you know, um, weird burying uh, grounds. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's like every fucking thing is in here. And I think that him, the way the way that it sort of unfolds where here's this here's this haunted building and not only are you getting the 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 current plot line but then he's like threading in these you know the the backstory of the place here and there mm-hmm. yeah, in, the their, in their stories and, yeah, what yeah. it feels to me is like it's almost like if he did the shining and was annotating it as he went along with the stuff that he wrote about in before the play which was like this mm-hmm. like short piece that he wrote as a companion piece to The Shining. And it like told you some of the backstories of various you know, people that had died there. And that's what this feels like. It feels like he was like, all right, well, you know, uh, I need to expand this to miniseries length. So we'll get some. Well, let's actually see some of that shit. Let's bring it in. You know, it's it's so Stephen King tropey, this thing. Like Emery. Emery is also a classic fucking Stephen King character. Like just the the nerdy guy. He's, just and he's like kind of from the stand. Oh, for totally, sure. Totally. Totally. Yeah, and Jimmy like Simpson's him. character, the you know, is very much kind of like the the guy that's that's uh fuck, what's his name? The guy that's kind of hunting down Tad in uh, the dark half and uh, uh yeah, well and I was thinking Richard D's from fucking Nightflyer. You well because he has a camera, so that yeah. that, that works. Um yeah, but he's just that slimy. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he's very tabloidy. He's he's like a, a journalism student or whatever. But yeah, no, I see, I see the connection. But I, I, I like Drew. Like he's just this guy that doesn't give a fuck about anybody else and will get whatever, whatever uh, he can. So like I, I thought about the dude from um, Dark Half. He's a, uh, you know, he's got a little shared DNA with um, uh, what's his nuts from Lisey's story. You know, the the Dane DeHaan played in the mm-hmm. in the miniseries. You know, and and maybe it's also because <clears throat> Jimmy Simpson's playing him, and he's playing him with that kind of energy too. Yeah. You know? So yeah, it, I I see it. Yeah, this definitely does does feel like a bunch of Stephen King shit in a blender. Well, it's really yeah. interesting to watch because it's it's like sort of an Ouroboros of King stuff because Jackson was such a huge inspiration for a lot of his work. And then he's using his favorite tropes from his own work to do a retelling of Shirley Jackson's Hill House. So it's just like a whole, uh, a big spiral of, (laughs) of his influences and his favorite things to put in stories. Let's talk about the cast a little bit more. We talked about, we mentioned the God, Melanie Linsky, of course, Mm -hmm. is in this. Um, Yeah. Nancy Travis is the lead, you know, uh, professor. And she's so good. She's good. She's, I think she's a little too obviously 
the villain of the yeah. uh, to, no, to some degree. I actually completely disagree with that. I Go fucking on. love her in this. I, something that I think it is it is absolutely fantastic. And I don't think that King did a great job with some of the other female characters. The um the Jesus lady and then the hot lady, which are basically mm-hmm. you can call them that because those are their only personality traits. <laughs> um but the psychologist is so well written I just love the idea. I, I love a character who is, you can see why she's doing all the things. You can see why she's so obsessed, why she's making these bad choices. You know, she very obvious, like there's a great moment. And I think it's in the third episode when I believe it's Julian Sands character who can hit me with a truck, by the way, uh, tells not like, anymore. Oh. Listen, RIP. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Rest in peace, <laughs> Oh wait, I'll do you one better. Oh no, <laughs> that's, that's somehow even worse. Uh, but yes. <laughs> anyway, he confronts Julian Sands' character confronts the psychologist and says, basically, like you fucking knew we were gonna die when you brought mm-hmm. us in here. Um, but you see, she's so I, I love that they they show in the beginning. You know, she's losing her tenure. She's really starting to lose the handle on her life because she's so obsessed with this, and she thinks that getting ringing hard proof of the supernatural out of this house is going to change her life and i really love her relationship with the heir of the house right um uh again like all these are elements from hunting of hill house there's the psychologist who's doing the investigating the heir of the house who's charming and handsome uh the person who is taking care of their demanding mother you know it's all the same type of characters uh but i love her relationship with him because it's such a traditionally masculine one and that's it's almost like a kind of ripley from alien situation where Hmm. stephen king is writing um writing the psychologist in such a traditionally masculine way you know she's career obsessed she's very powerful uh she's fucking this person just to get something out of them Mm -hmm. uh and really like that situation that scene where they're in bed together and she like he's just so vulnerable and is telling her he loves her and she doesn't give a shit she's just like yeah i have some spreadsheets to look at like he's so (laughs) she's so dismissive of him like he's almost just like her bimbo (laughs) yeah and it's I just love the way that that's written. It's so interesting. And I don't think I don't think we see characters like that enough. And mm. even though it might come off as a little overtly villainous as a career obsessed lady, <laughs> I right. really get it and I appreciate it. And I think she plays it really, really well. I th- I think it's I don't think this is a performance thing. I think it's a scripting issue. Mm-hmm. Because in the first episode, I'm I'm 100% with you on the first episode, but I think in the second episode, it it starts becoming clear very quickly that, like, she's kind of like, fuck these people. I'm, not, I'm, you know, like, she starts being kind of mean to Steve. You know, she's, like, kind of snapping at, at, at everyone. And, I, you know, I hadn't seen this, so I remember thinking, like, during the second episode, like, they're going to kill her off. Like, they're making her... They're making her like weirdly aggro to a degree that they're going to have to kill this character off. Right. And then sure enough, like, you know, she's the one that, you know, gets it at the very end, you know, fucking in a shot that looks straight up like the shot from uh, Dr. Sleep when Rose the Hat gets taken out by all the overlooked ghosts. They're they're standing around her. I I wonder if Mike wasn't thinking about that shot. Well, there's there's a lot of Flanagan's 
stuff whether or not he intentionally did it no, there's there's a lot of of uh flanagan uh seedlings i guess you can call them sure. in, in, in this um, oh 100% you can connect this and you can connect Haunting of Hill House, Rose Red, and the Haunting of Bly Manor, actually, even yeah. though that's a very loose interpretation of Turning of the Screw, right. the idea of a woman's emotions being so strong and but also repressed that they create a kind of vortex in a house. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's fucking the Shirley Jackson special, baby. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I'm kind of with Scott that it, I feel like that they're just the turn. Um, it felt like I was missing something that like it, she went from, from being this like, Oh, she's playing everybody to now I'm just, you know, outwardly evil. There, there was, I had the exact same uh, feeling of whiplash watching, watching this going like, Oh, she just like went from like four to 12, like instantly, you know, it it did feel like that there should have been maybe something in there, but I, I, I'm, I'm totally in agreement with, with both of you. Like I love the opening and how it's so subtle where she's, they look like they're kind of this happy relation in the happy couple in a relationship. And it just becomes more, the, the more you see them together, the more apparent it is just, you know, how she's manipulating everybody throughout this whole thing. Uh, but at the same time, you kind of feel for her. Like you see that she, I love it when stories are able to do this well, where it's just like, they don't have a choice. Like it's either this, this is the farm. They're betting the farm on one, one event and it's got to work, you know? And, uh, um, and yeah, no, I, I, th- I think that's an incredibly uh, solid foundation for any uh, specifically genre uh, property, because, you know, one of the things is, is that, uh, you know, with this house being in the middle of, of the city, like there has to be something that kind of keeps everybody there. And that's what keeps her there. And, you know, and, uh, in the movie you get, you get, uh, you know, literally they can't get, get open the doors or break through the glass at a certain point. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, I think a lot of that because it's all rooted in character, it doesn't feel cheap whenever suddenly the doors are just barred because it's the haunted hotel or the haunted house, you know? Honestly, I think that's part of the weakness of especially the the later episodes is that, you know, you get a great backstory about Melanie Linsky and Kimberly Jones characters. uh, And you really even though Emery is so annoying, you know, you really understand why he's doing this. But some of the other characters like Julian Sands character, you never even really figure out what it is that he does, why he's there. Same with the Jesus lady and same with the hot lady and same with the the guy who has a fucking heart attack. Like they're just kind of there. And I, especially considering that it's a mini series and that they had a little more time to play with this. I wish that that was dialed up a little bit more because like when they die, you don't really care. You're not really rooting for them. The only reason you're rooting for Julian Sands is because he's so hot. Well, he's great. Like he, he is so charismatic and it's, it's yes. one of those things, you know, I mean, I, I grew up like with his direct to video, uh, horror stuff like Warlock and shit. Warlock, you know, I, yes. I'd watch, that's kind of where I knew him the most from. And I guess I think I fucking really underestimated him as an actor because like I was watching him here. I'm like, Oh yeah, Julian Sands is in this. And like, he just is just this, hose of charisma and charm and and the way he's delivering lines is is like i don't know like i'm just drawn in instantly to this character i was like holy shit this guy's like legitimately fucking killing it in this in this role yeah yeah there's the scene one of my favorite scenes and i'm the scene i think about quite often is there the when you know they're walking up the stairs the first time when she's giving them the tour and they're they've very smartly tied a rope to the bottom of the banister on the first floor so they don't lose their way. And they come back through the perspective hallway and realize that the house 
doesn't give a shit about their fucking safety precautions <laughs> and has installed a wall directly where they wanted to walk in the uh, the, just the shot of the fucking rope going directly through the wall is so chilling and really unique. Mm-hmm. I think I just, it, it really puts to bed a lot of ideas that many of us have when that we're reading haunted house stuff. Like, well, I wouldn't do that. And I would get, take mm-hmm. this and I would take that. That Rose red is like, fuck all of your shit. doesn't matter if you do it. And Ju and Julian Sands's character takes Annie up to the wall and shows her how to push against the power of the house with her powers. And it's so, it's such a great scene for the two of them. It's such a great scene throughout the whole series. It's really powerful and really compelling. And I just, I want more of that. I like, I really wanted to know why was this guy that we all really like so much? Why is he at this fucking house? You know? Right. Another, the, the Jesus lady, as you Mm -hmm. keep referring to her. Uh, Kathy is her character's name, I believe. It's uh, an actress named Judith Ivy, and I spent the entirety of this goddamn thing trying to place what I knew her from. And you know what, what you, it was? Yeah, um, Scott, there's a, a website called IMDb that would be really <laughs> yeah, helpful yeah, yeah. But that. but like sometimes I like a, I, I like to try to think of things, you know, rather than having to have them told to me. You I know, know it's really hard for you though. That's I'm really my proud. that's my 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 guessing process. But she is Keanu Reeves's like Jesus freak mom in The Devil's Advocate, mm. and huh. like you got typecast. Yeah, <laughs> she like, looks like a she looks that like just a Jesus looks like it goes though. to church. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she looks churchy for sure. Yeah, she 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 looks like um she could be the cousin of the uh, Sparkle Motion lady from from uh, totally from Donnie Darko. Yeah, you know how totally. some people say that there's certain actors that just have a face that looks like they've seen a cell phone. Yeah. <laughs> this woman just has a face that you know that she's eaten those those crackers that they have. <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh, but in in a radical departure from most of Stephen King's uh, Jesus obsessed character, she's actually a nice one that doesn't go nuts. That's and true. Try try to ruin it for everybody. So so that's another true. twist on Stephen King stuff there. Uh, another villainous element. We have uh, Matt Ross as em- Emery Wat- Waterman. Um, mm-hmm. He's so fun. This was this was another person where I was like, I know this fucking guy from somewhere, and it was driving me crazy. He plays Lewis Carruthers in American Psycho. He's the mm. uh, the gay guy that hits on Patrick Bateman in the bathroom, mm-hmm. the, right. the bow tie wearing dude. Uh, he's great in this. My only note is it feels like the script was written for a really fat guy, and he's clearly not that fat. Like he looks <laughs> like in in fact, it looks like they probably got a little padding on him. Yeah, because, they they put some pillows under his shirt for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that wouldn't fly these days. That's not good for, <laughs> for representation. <laughs> but I, I do. I just love him in this. I, I, I do think that even though it's so such a trope thing for King, it's one of the characters that he really writes best is the over overbearing mother. And it's so over the top in this, but it's a blast. Like he goes out when he goes out and looks in his mom's fucking station wagon and is full of stuffed animals that she bought for 25% off. You know, he's so desperate to get out of there, but feels so tied to her. Like the, the scene where his mom in her, what is he, what is she, what does he call her, her, her car? Mommy's little Mommy's little scoot about. So, yeah, yeah, something like yeah, yeah. I just love that moment when she shows up there, and you can see the flip side of the, their dynamic, where he's so resentful of her, but when she shows up, he immediately melts to and submits mm-hmm. to whatever she wants, and is really panicking because he can't find her. And 
it's so it's very entertaining to watch the two of them. Well, he, he's got a little uh, Craig Toomey in him, too, from Langoliers, which at a certain point, he's just like, hey, you know what? If we just kill the fucking girl, then we we're all good, baby. And and he just keeps I lo- it's almost funny in how like once they realize that the power of the house is tied to the little girl and everybody's like, absolutely not. We got to somehow save the girl from the power of the house. And he's like, well, I got a pool ball. I can just knock her on the back of the head and we can get the fuck out of here. And a which party is not actually like, a terrible idea. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing is you're actually sitting there going, you know, you don't have to kill her just to not just knock her out and everybody's home free. Yeah, Annie um, is is so interesting in this to me because it feels like her the rules of Annie are kind of unclear. Um, yeah, but, you know, it's, it's fun that like it's just really fun to have a character that that's that powerful and is almost kind of like chaotic neutral like her desires are not not necessarily at odds with the rest of the group but they're just so different like she just doesn't care about what anybody else wants like she's like maybe chaotic good is better but you know she doesn't she doesn't really fully know you you it's unclear whether or not she is aware that the house is working through her and if she is aware if she's on board with that or not you know she doesn't know if she wants to stay you know she is still very much has a lot of like little girl tendencies but is the right. clearly the most powerful person in the house by an order of magnitude mm-hmm. uh it's just really i love her i love her as a character well isn't there a moment in in the third episode where like julian sands is saying that he can kind of hear her but it's like she's at the top of a tower yes you know so it feels that to me like I, I interpreted that to mean that that the that Ellen Rimbauer and that the house was more in control of of the vessel that that you know that is her and her consciousness were just kind of taking a back seat. Um, oh, that's but interesting. You're right. I, I didn't even vague. connect that wordage, but yeah, hmm. I think that's yeah. a great observation. Yeah, she's also another classic Stephen King autistic kid character who has powers. Yeah. What do you? What do you? What do you? What do we make of that? I know we've like <laughs> this has come up on the show before and we're like, yeah, this is rickety. You shouldn't do that. Like that's, you know, uh, that's a product of its time and blah, blah, blah. But like, right. It's happened often enough where you got to be like, where did you get it into your head that, like, <laughs> you know, autistic kids maybe have special powers? Like mm. it's if it's a trope, you've done it too many times, probably. You know, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised to find out that Stephen King had an interaction or at some point or maybe knows a person with autism. I think it'd sure. be really fun for you guys to find someone who knows a lot about Stephen King and is on, on the autism spectrum to speak about mm-hmm. this, because I'm that's a, a perspective I would really like to hear. Yeah, no, that. Yeah, no, I think that'd be a great idea. Um, I listen, I think that there's like you for, for when you look at a character like Duddits, for instance, that's, that's a, a step well over the line. Um, but he's also I, not autistic. I think, I think he's, uh, something else, right? Like he has down syndrome, right? That, like that's the intention. True. true. But like, it seems like that, that it's not just autistic kids. It's like autistic and down syndrome kids. It's, you know, very specifically kids with People disabilities. Who are neurodivergent. But but I but I have a feeling that that's coming from a place in King's mind where he's just like, you know, I don't want to give him, you know, put put uh, uh, my words in his in, in his mouth or whatever. But I feel like he's he's trying to essentially give power to those who don't have power mm-hmm. normally. 
which is a good instinct, but then you also, you have the, the issue where it's like, it can't be a normal person that has autism. It has to be magical person, you know, then, you know, that borders in the, how he has treated uh, a lot of his black characters right. and how he can't just have a black character. It has to be a magical black character, right. you know? And so that, you know, but from, you know, I, I just, I feel like in his heart, he is trying to come from a place of empowering those who typically don't have power in these kinds yes. of stories. I, yeah. I mean, we are, we are, we have been critical of some of the things King's written on this show, but yeah. I don't think either one of us or anyone that's been on the show, frankly, thinks he is this, this is a guy with like hate in his heart. Right, right. Right. You know, he is absolutely a product of his environment and the time in which he was raised and, yeah. you know, his own, his own family, you know, his own life experiences. So right. I, I, but, but I don't for a second believe he's just like, you know, oh, those kids are weird, man. I'm going to I'm going to start giving them special <laughs> right. power. Like, no, I don't I think, think that's right. what's going on. I think it has to do a lot with the idea of displaced either power or emotions and repressed power and emotions. It's something you see a lot in Stephen King's work. Uh, you know, in here in Rose Red, we have the idea that, you know, Annie is very neuro neurodivergent. She's incapable of a lot of things that neurotypical people are but she is very very powerful in other ways that's something that right. you see a lot in in a lot of his books um you know look at um look at the shining you know the idea that jack has not so much changed but really repressed all of his anger and a lot of the badness about him um and is managing it as best he can but when put in the environment of the overlook hotel that is that comes out all of that all of those feelings all that anger all that rage that he has uh is brought out and manifests in a very very bad way um i you know if i'm sure we could sit here and pick out another half a dozen more examples but there's this right. idea of um people who are unable to do one thing but have power in other arenas or you know, repress some part of their cell, um, their selves and it comes out in other ways. Right. Yeah. It's probably a combination of, of that. And, you know, just wanting to give these marginalized voices a, a place at, at, you know, in a narrative that they normally wouldn't have. Um, I, I feel like, I feel like you're, you're pretty, you're pretty right on it. it maybe it's, 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 it's daredevils, you know, uh, uh uh, syndrome here it's like he's blind so his his hearing is super great now you know mm-hmm. yeah. it's like that's you know it, it might be as, as simple as that shorthand but you know I, I just have a feeling like king we, we talk a lot about his love of the underdog and his love of mm-hmm. uh you know of that and i just think that that's you know that can manifest in a a lonely you know kid or a you know a single an old an old man you know who's, who's an old widower like it, it can represent itself in a lot of ways but i think he tends to default into children with special abilities and um uh you know sometimes that overlaps in the you know uh, differently abled you know characters very well yeah. um very well. In, i have this <laughs> i have this in my notes i yes. did not find an organic place to put it yet mm. uh so I, I will just say that i thought that the upside down room you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And uh-huh. there's like the hanging lamps on chains that are coming yep. up out of the ground. I think it's really fucking cool when they start bumping into those and they move as though they would. Yeah. You know, if you uh-huh. hit them in midair. And I'm not sure. I'm guessing they had like a line attached to the top of those and we're like, like a cable and we're moving them and probably digitally erase that. 
like in order for it to like tip and wobble like that, like how else would you? I thought they were really fucking cool. Okay. How far, how far, yeah, I'm yeah. very I'm very obsessed with this note from you that's just like this thing, very cool. It's I really mean it's also cool. just like it gets cooler and more ridiculous and like almost kind of not scary, but it makes the story even more intense when you think of this woman, right, who is married, this very <laughs> rich and very powerful man. Yeah. And she's so rich and so powerful and so bored and so lonely and so trapped. That her and her best friend slash lover just dream up these absolutely fantastical and and Mm -hmm. likely wildly expensive rooms and then just make them happen. They have no purpose whatsoever other than to just look at them. And it's really nuts to think about to think about that, you know. It's it's also really cool where it comes into the story because, you know, it's it's introduced fairly quickly into them exploring the the house and you're primed to go, Oh my God, supernatural. This is supernatural. And when it's revealed that it's not, that that's just how she built the room. It's, mm-hmm. it's a fucking cool reveal. And of course, uh, you know, there's actually a really cool camera move that goes with it too. And, you know, it's a more very modern camera move, by the way, you know, where it starts off and they look like they're, you know, they're walking upside down, you know, on the, on the ceiling and then the camera moves and you realize they're walking on the floor. That's the, the, you know, everything's hanging upside down. Um, it's actually a fairly modern move. So, uh, props to, uh, director Craig Baxley, who, by the way, directed action Jackson and dark angel. I don't know if you've ever seen dark angel, but that movie is uh, fucking crazy. Oh my God, we forgot, Scott, Here we forgot to will, uh, the most important thing about this. Yeah, about I was Rosebrand. just about to, I was, I was I about you. to eat you up for it. Yeah. yeah um, Mallory texted me while she was watching, <laughs> yeah. watching this, and yes. uh, she had looked up a photo of of Craig Baxley and was uh-huh. like, "Look at this!" And well, what did you discover? He's Chud Buggins. <laughs> <laughs> I was losing my mind. If whatever listeners have pictured of what Chud Buggins looks like, that's what Craig Baxley is. He Do you still has have the like... pictures on your phone. Send them to Vespi so he can see. Uh, my phone's an airplane. Oh, I'm scrolling mode. through it. his IMDb pictures right now. Oh, I mean, yep, I, see, I see the one you're talking about. He's, he's literally kinda, uh, has a blonde tooth. mullet and a giant yep. mustache. Like, <laughs> yep, he's wearing he's like a, a he's wearing like a, a, a quasi tank top shirt. You can tell in this two two quarter two thirds profile shot. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. I he's see had, it. He's had some Miller High lives in his day. He absolutely tell. has. That man is cruising around town listening to Journey. Um, <laughs> one, well, one more thing that I wanted to ask you two about because it's such a Stephen King trope and we've touched mm. on it a little bit, but the just the idea of sour ground. Yeah. Like bad ground. Mm. You know, there's a scene in, I think it's the first episode when she's doing her PowerPoint, but she just talks about how, you know, it's so tempting to lay all of the the blame and all of the everything on the house, but it was really, you know, it started while the house was being built, people were dying. You know, one, one of the workers is like overcome by a madness and murders another worker. And it's really just this space. And it's something you see. So, I mean, besides the obvious one of being pet cemetery, but you just see it so much in his work, just the idea of a place just being bad for the sake of being bad. Yeah. Which is very much the, uh, Scott, you know, mentioned the, uh, before the play, you know, piece of the shining, you know, that's very much, you know, the, uh, that as well, the origins of the overlook were very much the same, you know, deaths and the making of the building of it. And it wasn't just because the hotel saw some deaths later and that it's, 
it was just a bad area. And I, I love, I love that shit, especially when you have it, like I said, in Rose red, where that bad area, it's right in the middle of fucking Seattle, you know, yeah. it, it, can, it can be, it can be anywhere. Yeah. Have, have either of y'all ever been anywhere where you feel as though it's sour ground? Like I've been in places. You know, when I walked into your your bedroom when I went to visit you. <laughs> what did I say to you when I walked into your bedroom? I I, I don't know. <laughs> I I looked at Scott's bureau and it was like a uh, old spice deodorant and a Xbox controller, and I was like, <laughs> "You're like a parody of a guy right now." <laughs> there was also Lou. <laughs> you just looked him dead in the eye and said, "Stonia, then a man's hot." <laughs> um, but, but like, I've been, in, I've been in locations where I'm like, "This, some bad shit happened here," and like, I don't want to be in this location anymore. But I have not been. Like in a place that feels like that on the whole. Do you know what I'm saying? Where hmm. where have you been that felt felt bad? Oof. Uh, drug houses. Mm. Um. Jail. Uh, you know, <laughs> like where you you can feel the the vi- the vibes you, you and, can uh, feel of the what acu- it's experienced yes yeah. you can i i believe that you can feel in certain places especially places where um people have been uh hurt or it's a high tension right. area yep i i think that there's some sort of psychic damage occurs within that space that the accumulated history of it you can feel it sometimes yeah you know or like abandoned certain abandoned buildings, you know. Um, yeah, you know, I've, I've been in I've, I've been in a number of like shady places I probably shouldn't have been. And <laughs> like they don't all feel like that. But certainly some of them you're like, right. yeah, we got to get the fuck out of here. Like some bad shit went on here and I can just fucking tell. So let's go. Right. You know, Eric, but have you? Well, I mean, I think you're you're the the line from The Shining where Dick Halloran says that it's just like you know a burnt piece of toast that sometimes you know things leave a residue. Uh, I mm-hmm. think that's what you're feeling like that sticks with me. The only and I mentioned it here, so I won't go to the full story. Uh, you know, just so in, ca- in case anybody's heard the story a billion times already. But um, though one you time were in that the I Hobbit, yes, uh, in in New Zealand. <laughs> Um, well, strangely, strangely enough, it was like the opposite. Apparently, where I was staying in New Zealand this last time, somebody was telling me that it's like, oh, you know, that there was like a, a, a Maui, uh, Maui. They there was like a, a Maori uh, burial ground, like they would bury the. I was a staying Maori kind of in this place. On, 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 Maori yes, Scott. Maori. Nah, yes. Um, and uh, but like the the Maori people believe that that brings goodwill and vibes, and this is a place that I've been to. For the last 20 years, when I go to New Zealand in this particular, you know, part of Wellington, like I've mm-hmm. always felt at peace. So I felt like the opposite of that, where it's just like this is supposedly, a, you know, in a, if this was, you know, American lore or Western lore, I guess New Zealand's Western. What the fuck am I talking about? But if it was if it was non-indigenous lore, you know, it would have been. Um, you know, a scary place, but I guess like maybe if you're feel at peace here, it's because of that. But, uh, uh, but to Scott's point, the one place that, that I really just like instantly got the, you got to get the fuck out of here. You're not supposed to be here. Uh, was that insane asylum that was outside of Austin, you know, um, that we, it was a, an yes. abandoned insane asylum. When they screened they would, session nine, they screened session nine. Danvers? They, 
No. No, 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 no. No, this isn't Austin. No, they, not Boston. Not yeah. outside of Boston. Oh, oh, Austin. oh, oh, oh. Austin. A Danvers, I would imagine, I can almost guarantee would have the exact same feel. Like, if it, it still stood. If you but, go to Danvers now, it's just... It, the funny thing is, it right? yeah. look—it's condos. It looks exactly like the way that it did before, but like all spruced. Up. It's very surreal. <laughs> I don't know about that, and you know, maybe it's just you know you build it up in your mind, and you're supposed to feel this way. But you know, I, maybe I, I psyched myself up for it. But like when I was in that place, I was like, Sh- "Bad shit happened here. Like this isn't right. I feel like I'm being watched. You know, I could be alone in a room. You know, there like doing the tours, right?" Like, this could have all the lights on in the world and I would still feel uncomfortable here. And uh, so that's the only time I felt it, but like, this was a real deal. You know, we, we fucking fucked people up and, you know, electroshock people and tortured yeah. people. See, this is why I don't want to go so. do a thing where they filmed Shawshank. Like, I don't want to be in a prison where, you know, all, 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 an untold number of horrors were visited upon like people that were, you know, being kept, fucking locked up like it's just it's not fun for me to be in an environment like that you know i that kind of i don't know that kind of tourism rubs me the the wrong way it's like hanging out at a fucking plantation or something like Mm. you you don't want to be like that i'll tell you yeah you just want to get married there yeah Yeah. (laughs) wow one uh... so so i was 21 years old Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and i was driving through up through new hampshire looking for the there was this like tiny little used bookstore that I was trying to find. And I knew it was like kind of, it wasn't on like a, a main road. It was kind of off. It was, it was very much off the beaten path. And this was way before I had a smartphone. Does anyone remember the time when we all um, had those, not we all, but some of us had those GPSs that like suction cup to the fucking oh, yeah. windshield yeah, of your car. Yeah. Oh man. I, I had uh, one that they, that they designed to make look like uh kit from Knight Rider and would actually, wow. they actually had, they actually had the guy who voiced kit and your to, to do all the <laughs> It's true. <laughs> yep. Uh, yep. Yep. The good old days. Any, anyways, I was driving around in my piece of shit Dodge Stratus coupe and my we were way up in new hampshire so the gps was not getting very good reception and i turned down this road and i turned into this it was like a very wooded area and we went i was going down this like unpaved road i could already like the back of my brain was already going hey bitch you are not where you're supposed to be this is not where Mm. this fucking bookstore is and i turned into this huge clearing that was sort of like maybe a it was kind of like a trailer park but it didn't really look like a trailer park it was like every they were all arranged in a circle Mm-mm. around this clearing Mm-mm. Mm-mm. immediately out of that <laughs> and like there was that's no where they signs. do their festivities that's where they do their i'm not the done mr wampler and yeah. you know there was no no signage anywhere no you know like welcome to whatever it was just all of these trailers arranged around a gigantic dead white tree (laughs) (laughs) and there were like you know kids toys and garbage you know just sort of thrown around but there was nobody there completely silent and then i pulled in and i'm immediately like very frantically clenching my butthole trying to turn around as fast as i can and i turn and some guy in a pair of overalls walks up to my car and leans in the window and says you don't want to be here holy fuck okay and i was like yep you're right yes sir have a great day and like fucking drove off <laughs> and fuck i that. could 
and I definitely from even when I started driving down that road, there was something in my brain that was like, hey, this place is bad. <laughs> yeah. People are people being served up at barbecue stands outside of that place, <laughs> like on the on the weekends. They have a little farmer's market. Um, <laughs> one place I've always wanted to go um, and I don't even know, like how much you can even really traverse it is uh, a place in Pennsylvania called Centralia. Which, as far as I know, like, and maybe this is no longer the case, but as recently as a few years ago, I remember hearing about it again. But it was this town where they had like a fucking um, a large landfill trash and the town decided to just like burn it to get rid of it. And <laughs> the fire unexpectedly ignited. It, it like got th- through the earth somehow and ignited a fucking uh, coal mine that was underground. Oh, and it stayed going for like decades. Like it's yeah. this is this is like the mid '60s or late '60s or something when this happened, and it's just like it's just yeah, this town is always burning underneath. Like they had to abandon it, and it, they like call it the real life Silent Hill. You mm. know, I would really like to see what that looks like in person. I, I'm sure you can't run around on it. You know, you're not going barefoot through Central. <laughs> is that what you normally like to do when you go visit places? Yeah, I'm like fucking just Johnny take off Appleseed. your shoes and have a little run. <laughs> yeah, like just traipsing about the country. That's how I got up to Idaho. Just fucking hoofing it. And make, <laughs> make, make fists with your toes. Yeah, you know. Wow. Yep. Carrying Conan on me, like a little baby <laughs> Bjorn. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, I've never, I've never felt like that cursed land sort of feel anywhere, mm. I don't think maybe you gotta go you gotta spend more time in New England you know I have been thinking about it and I would very much like to you mm. know um, I'll, I'll find all the weird fucking creepy shit out there don't worry about <laughs> that yeah honestly speaking as a New Englander I think you know we talk about a lot about how Stephen King loves the idea of sour ground and how native mm. burying grounds are uh, just such a a big theme in a lot of his work, but it really is something that, you know, you, you get so used to it growing up, growing up there that you might not even notice it, but it, it's, it's so prevalent. Like you will be fucking eating at a sandwich shop and there'll be a statue out front. That's like a bunch of pilgrims massacred 5 million native Americans here. And you're just like, Holy shit all the time. Like mm-hmm. it really is. It's so omnipresent in every new England state, you know, cause so many, a lot of new England institutions are like very like obsessed with just constantly sucking their own dicks about how, you know, that's where the settlers were and the pilgrims and, and, and whatever. I, I, I told Scott when he was making fun of me about candle pin bowling, that the bowling alley that I grew up in, like I said, pilgrim lanes. I mean, it was like a racist five nights at Freddy's. Like there were just horrifying murals everywhere of like pilgrims and very offensive stuff about native Americans there. And it really is when you like, again, when you grow up there, you get kind of used to it, but it's so fucking horrifying that I can see as someone like Stephen King, you know, drawing a lot of inspiration and really setting a lot of places in New England and just New England is such a huge force in his work that these things would crop up because it's so common for you to be in a place and maybe even if it doesn't feel weird to realize to like read a little plaque or see a statue or whatever and just be like, oh yeah, a bazillion people were murdered right here, you know? And I think that's something that is 
sort of, I mean, I know obviously there's places like that all over the country, but in New England, it's so much more on display. There's also a feeling too, because, you know, we've talked on the show about how Wampler and I went to like one of the Zodiac like murder spots when we were in San Francisco and it just felt like a city. Like there's nothing there. It's like, oh my God, there didn't feel like anything lingered there but no. there there are parts of of new england where i bet if you went out to lake barriessa though maybe you know and, that and maybe just because that'd be out of the city he's too I don't uh, know. well fair but i don't know but like even walking around salem like you there's there's something beyond all the kitsch of it and salem is for sure kitschy um you know there is a little something where you just kind of feel like yeah there's there's a little heaviness here like it's not an unpleasant feeling, really. It's not like, oh my god, I'm I'm gonna be bewitched or whatever. It's like, but it just there, there is something something about New England, that, and I don't know if I just it's been built up over pop, you know, through pop uh, culture over over all my life or something. But like, you know, San Francisco didn't feel that way to me. And well, I'll I know tell you, been part of it is the weather. Part of yeah. it is the 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 demeanor of the people that live in the area. Right. And the it's third Scott thing loves. is. Yes, I love it. Um, and third, it's the architecture. There's right. you can like I've been up to New England with you now like three times, and every time we go up there, we just drive around and fucking gawk out the windows like we're <laughs> yeah. like we're looking at an amusement park because it's yeah. it's it's all these just super old buildings. Like you can feel the fucking history of that place in a way that you can't in San Francisco. I mean, there are, of course, old buildings in San Francisco, but like we're talking about an entire stretch of the country where there's like still colonial houses and shit and like stuff like that. But I think that's the key is the thing, you know, people have been lived on this fucking land for forever before the settlers came here. But in New England, it's so much more on display and it's really a part of a lot of new England institutions, identities, sure. like fucking bowling alleys called itself pilgrim lanes. Like a lot of, right. a lot of new England institutions take a lot of pride in it. So it's, it's kind of grotesque in the way that it's displayed all the time. You know, Salem is a really funny example because, you know, you just see a lot of like horrifyingly horrifying and offensive shit that is like made Salem is, made it into its identity and it becomes a tourist thing even though that a lot of the the quote salem witch trials didn't happen there they actually happened in danvers that's not what where salem was you know it's it it, that's the the horror part of it is it's not just that it happened there but they have put monuments up to it they have created museums for it it has become it has become woven into the tapestry of the aesthetic and the identity of new england absolutely Hmm. And I'll tell you what, I love it. I respond to it yeah. like you freak. It's fucking. It's it's really creepy. It's like up people there. who are mean to you. <laughs> it's creepy up there, and I like creepy, and I like the fuck you attitude of the people that live up there. You mm. know, which is why you love me. Yes, I respond well to that misanthropic sort of <laughs> you know uh, tone. We, yep. we the last few times Vespi and I have gone up to to New England, we ended up hanging out with. Uh, an artist by the name of J.C. Richard, uh, who's uh, 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 mostly a friend of Vespi's, and, and yeah. you know now we're all pals. I he and I like followed each other on Twitter, but hadn't really ever interacted much before. And uh, that guy is definitely like he's he's upbeat and he's happy, but he'll also tell you to go fuck yourself in a heartbeat. You know, yeah, like yep. that's my kind of people. Like I understand <laughs> yeah. this kind of people. You know, yeah. I don't always understand Southern hospitality, and like you know. 
you know, hey, y'all, God bless your heart. Like, that's yeah. that's what I grew up with. And I don't get like that doesn't feel like me. It feels more like me to be like, hey, I love you, but fuck yourself. You know, mm-hmm. that's yeah. so. Yeah, I, I want to get out there, man. I, I like yeah. that part. Plus, yeah, I can some... go bother Daniel Danger whenever I want once I get there. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, you get our, get our show cards on time and in person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's something that calls to me about New England, too. It's like, you know, again, I don't know if it's a pop culture thing, but like every the, from the first time that I visited Maine, like I was like, you know what? I, I started looking at Zillow. You know, I started like, what what are houses? Like That's up true. There? What I would it be like? And, and it's like, and, yeah, and I still fucking ch- I get emails every fucking day from Zillow going, check out this house in, in Bangor. And I'm like, oh, my God, this house was built in, you know, 1850 by a like a shipyard baron. And, and it and you know, if I bought the equivalent house in Austin, it would be like a, a seventy-five million dollar house. But you know, because it's in Bangor, it's it's a six hundred thousand dollar house. Or yeah, didn't you, you know? Zillow the house like on the corner of Stephen King Street that was for sale and it was like a hundred and eighty thousand dollars and it was like three stories with a wraparound <laughs> porch and shit. It wasn't and we were quite like, that, what? But, but it wasn't that far off. It was like it was like six hundred thousand dollars, but it was like a. 4,000 plus square foot, three story house. It has a gazebo is a corner lot, like right next to the the famous Stephen King house and shit. It's just like, it's like, holy shit. Like if I, if I bought a house for 600,000 in Austin, it would be like a, a uh, maybe a three bedroom, two bath, you know? (laughs) Yeah. It would have a bathtub in the fucking living room that somebody left there. It wasn't even part of the original house. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, but you guys fucking like shoveling because that's what you're going to fucking do when you move to Maine. Yeah. Well, I've been working out. It's uh, that's yeah. get a have little you ever, you have. I bet you money. Neither of you have ever even shoveled before. What? Oh, I've definitely shoveled. I've used shovels. Are you talking about snow? I'm not sure. Yeah. Have. have you shoveled snow? I haven't shoveled snow, but I've shoveled, shoveled, uh, shoveled, shoveled shoveled dirt. Yep. Which yeah. I assume is heavier is, than snow. It has yeah, rocks it and such in it. Yeah, but it doesn't break your soul like snow does. You're I don't know. Have to shoveling up a is. Bit it, if you want to move to Maine? I'm going to tell you something. Shoveling is never a fun activity. <laughs> no one ever gets hyped up about shoveling. Like we, goddamn, we uh, we we went out. We did a charity thing once with Birth Movies Death, and me and Evan went out and we were like building. We were building like uh, tiny homes. I think mm-hmm. right. It was like some initiative that the draft house was doing and they asked us if we want to do it. And we're like, yeah, fuck yeah. And I think in our minds, we thought we would be like hammer and nails into, you know, we're picturing each other in like tool belts and like, <laughs> G- Jimmy you know, Carter's putting this door else. in place. Yeah, no. Mm-hmm. And they like, they took us out there and like handed us both a shovel and then like pointed to like a big stretch of like fucking ground. And it was just like, dig that up. Like it was like, <laughs> all right, well, <laughs> yeah, that that shit is not fun. It's backbreaking work. Yeah, it's a it's an entirely different animal than shoveling snow. Entirely. Yeah, yeah I bet well, I could do well, it. I've well, I've done harder. The money things. that you're you're saving buying house up there, then you can just do the Stephen King thing, and the second the snow starts falling, you hightail your ass down uh, to Florida or back down to Texas. Also, you can just go outside and pour hot water on it, and it's fine. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's wow. so easy. Yeah. Wow. Everyone, everyone knows. Get one of those heated driveways that you can just hit hit a button and and it just melts the snow for you. No, oh, that'd be first winter in fucking Maine. You would look like fucking Jack at the end of The Shining. <laughs> yeah, there's a reason why I haven't pulled the trigger on that. And I love the cold. I love the cold. But even that one, <laughs> even that kind of cold makes me know. go. We we are know. we are so far off track of Rose Red. <laughs> like like I have I have a million thoughts I want to talk about with this, mm. but like. 
Uh, we we should probably wrap up before yeah. the audience uh, passes out. Um, <laughs> is there anything else in relation to Rose Red that we want to discuss? Just absolutely have to talk about. Yes. There are no snow you, you shoveling took, scenes, unfortunately. Yeah, you both took copious amounts of notes. What what do your notes say? We got through I mean, all of mine. Yeah, we I, we got through most of mine. Um, you know, I, I I still think it's a fucking banger. It was really fun to revisit mm-hmm. it again after years and years after I've been a teen, and and you know, th- I still think there's there's things wrong with it. Um, I think the third episode, which should be you know such a so powerful and should be such a banger is actually the weakest of the three. Right. Definitely is. Yeah. Mostly for the, the reasons that I mentioned earlier, you know, by that point you've already seen the ghosts, the, you know, the, their shock value is gone. Again, they all look like beef jerky for some reason. Um, right. And also because there's so many characters, there's moments where you're just waiting for people to get killed off, you know, right. The Jesus lady and Julian Sands go off by themselves and you just know one of them is going to fucking die. So mm-hmm. it, it almost it feels a little bit tedious and the end feels very rushed. You know, when the Jesus lady is communicating with Annie in a way that's not very well explained through automatic writing. It just right. really felt like they were like, shit, we haven't given this lady anything to do this entire time. <laughs> right. What do we do here? Um, but overall, kind of. I was going to say, they also kind of uh, tread water a little bit, too, where they suddenly Nancy Travis's character is like, no, there's nothing supernatural. We can just open those doors. And like, well, we couldn't open those doors five minutes ago. What are you talking about now? It's just it felt weird. It felt weird that there was a few choices in in that one where it just made it feel like they were treading water. Um, But what I will say, it's all off in the third episode. Yeah, it, it does. It gets, it gets kind of wonky. But what I will say is that one of the things I really do appreciate about this miniseries is the variety of the uh, of the supernatural shit. It reminded me a little bit of Poltergeist in that re- regards, where it's not just specters. It's sometimes it's uh, you know uh, an, an animatronic, what you call the beef jerky thing. It reminded me of the zombies from Return of the Living Dead. That like when they strap her to the the table and she's like describing how. The brains, you know, I have to eat brains to make the pain go away. You know, it looked kind of like that level of effects. But I was like, holy shit, they actually did like real effects. And it's not just like a bad mask on a person, you know. Um, yeah. They did that. They they have like, you know, uh, little tremors monsters that go underneath the carpets. And they have the spectral, you know, skull that will shoot out, you know, shoot out of the people from time to time. A real um, buffet. Yeah, you, you get a nice variety of, of supernatural shit where I think it could have very easily have just been, um, uh, you know, just the beef jerky people. Sure. Well, that's that's the uh, the last big thing I wanted to talk about. And that's okay. the connective tissue going all the way back around to where we were at the beginning. That's the connective tissue for me between Rose Red and the haunting of and um, not haunting of the uh, just Hell House is yeah. there's so much sexuality in Hell House on behalf of the supernatural. You know, right. there some girl gets butt fucked in Hell House. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a really big element, especially with Emery. Yeah. And the in this. And it's it's very interesting. I like it better in Rose Red because it doesn't feel as absolutely fucking drenched in misogyny as, <laughs> right. as Hell House is, because it's, you know, they're trying to get to Emery through all the yeah. ways that they can. And they, they're like, Hey, this is a loser virgin. You know how we can tempt mm-hmm. him. Let's, let's give him a sexy lady. And mm-hmm. they're con- like multiple sexy ladies. 
both the older ghost of the of the starlet who died there and the brand yep. new ghost of the hand touchy lady it's just real it's a really really interesting thing and it's something that um i'm very fascinated with whenever it crops up in horror but in haunted houses specifically like the idea of a ghost manifesting from the beyond because it's horny or is trying to get to you through horniness right scott you're the you're the expert correspondent on horniness why don't you weigh in here (laughs) uh what's the specific question uh just what your thoughts are on the horniness in rose red and how it ties into those themes in the haunted house genre in general i think uh, this is a matter of taste but rose red is so low-key horny (laughs) that it almost doesn't even register for me Wow. All right. Well, you know what I'm Wampler's like, horny scale for us. I'm desperate to know. Yeah. This is like a, a two out of a 10, you know, wow. in terms what's of a, what's a 10. Shirley. Uh, Shirley was like a, like an eight or a nine, probably, you know, that's just dripping with it. Uh, Rose red. It's like, there's some stuff going on in the margins, but this also aired on broadcast television. And, you know, uh, and in fact, also, wait, even wait, wait, like wait, the, the, the lesbian relationship we were talking about earlier, was like, you know, there, there, it was up for debate whether or not I might even notice it. So not that horny yeah. is quick pause. Know. Yeah. Yes. Can we just touch on the fact that like one of the ghosts tries to tempt Emery by saying you want to get it on? <laughs> yeah. Also not horny. Like, there, well, that's very Stephen King horny for sure. Yeah, that's, that's Stephen King. That's <laughs> yeah, a good that's way very... of putting it. You know, it's it's. <laughs> hey, you want to um, get it on? And I, I don't. I don't feel like uh, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> <laughs> I don't feel I don't know, like the haunted house genre doesn't, you know, granted, I haven't read nearly as many haunted house books as Mallory, who's probably read all the haunted house books. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's not necessarily a genre I associate with uh, horniness. I, I just don't. Well, so. I think maybe we need to differentiate horniness from sexuality because I think a lot of a lot of it is meant as like horniness, not so much for horniness sake, but horniness as a vulnerability and as a crack in the in the um, mind of somebody. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yes. You'll all remember the the tragic events of 1984. You know, I think you know where I'm going with this, where there was. a scientist by the name of Ray Stentz. Mm-hmm. Uh, he worked for the Ghostbusters and wow. was blown by a ghost yeah. uh, in the motion picture uh, Ghostbusters. You know, that they, they took advantage of him. And I, I don't know if uh, that ghost, it seemed like he consented, but we don't know that for sure. I think that's yeah, problematic. Well, I, I can tell you Peter Venkman didn't consent to being uh, slimed. By, I by hear the, the serious um, answer is I hear what you're saying. I, I still don't associate the haunted house genre with. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to think of examples, basically, beyond I'm the not. ones we've just named. <laughs> I know you're not, but like, you know, um, I, I'm not equipped to answer this question. Basically, uh, there's a really great graphic novel called The Me You Love in the Dark, mm-hmm. um, and it's quite literally about a struggling painter. Um, she moves into this old or she rents this old house as a place to to work for a few months. And the house is haunted. This is not a spoiler. And the physical man, she starts sleeping with the physical manifestation of the house, like this ghost. And it mm-hmm. becomes an abusive relationship. That's, that's one very salient example for me, but mm. I think it's a, it's a pretty 
not popular, but not uncommon trope in haunted houses. And again, I think it's really important to differentiate like the ho- actual horniness from just like sexuality as a. Well, as what a you're weakness. talking about is using using a character's inherent horniness as a weapon against them. Yes. And and I don't again, I can't I can't think of enough examples in order to like speak about uh, speak about that knowledgeably. The Shining. Um, but uh, I guess. But the fucking like, woman in two thirty seven, like the best example. I mean, that's that's one. But like, I don't have a. I like, I can't. You're asking me to like address like, what do you think about this trope? And it's like, I can I can name you two or three examples. I I, I don't. I can't. I can't uh, conjugate an argument uh, in favor or against this. But I do think that as as a, a narrative ploy that it makes a lot of sense. And I think it it especially makes a lot of sense if you're um, deploying that sort of thing against a male character. Like I I can't, I can't speak to any female, you know, the female perspective, but I I know that if I were tempted by a very horny ghost and the ghost was walk us through. Yeah. If the ghost, like, like if I was into it, you know, like if it was like my type, if the ghost ghost was hot enough, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it was my like type of ghost. Like I'd probably fuck a ghost. A ghost with a huge butt floats over to Scott. Yeah, can you, like like what's a your pie on a windowsill. What you, what's like, your opener? Yeah, I would. Uh, yeah, I mean, like I could definitely be tricked like that. I'm not that smart. Like <laughs> you know, you could you could like if Pennywise was going to appear to me, like Pennywise would probably take the form of like a lady with a big ass and the mom you know, from like, the Incredibles lure me into the sewers. Uh-huh. Yeah. Like fucking I'm an idiot. Like I'm, I'm Eric, could you yeah. be taken in by a sexy ghost? Uh, well, I'm also not very smart, so they wouldn't even need to <laughs> tap into the horny part of it. It just would have <laughs> just hey, you want some candy. <laughs> oh, true. hey, do you do you have a torchy's taco for me? I like torchy's. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, no, I've fallen out of the tower and now I'm dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've gotten I've gotten better about that as I've gotten older because resisting I, horny ghosts. <laughs> well, well, resisting horniness, I think. Mm. You know, <laughs> like uh, I think I was I was very freewheeling in my my younger years, and I wish I had a few of those back. And I kind of feel like um, I'm a little more discerning now. That said, I'm assuming that if it's a ghost, like it has some sort of insight into my psychology and could probably be fucking mounting a pretty serious campaign against my defenses. Yeah. So Emery resists the horny ghosts. Sure. Emery doesn't strike me as a very sexual character, though. He's also an incel. I'm I'm a sexual person. I don't think Emery is a sexual character. Really? Yes. Just because he's inexperienced or because he's resisting the beef jerky women? <laughs> because there's nothing about the character that speaks to his sexuality or um, beyond that. You know, it's not like this is a mama's boy. He talks about mommy's little scoot about, you know, he, he can't stand up to his own mother. You know, he's like he's just kind of a, a he's kind of a whiny little bitch. Like he, he's not, that's like his predominant characteristic. He's not like, you know, there's, there's no establishing of like uh sex as a motive for that character. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel as a person, sex is a motive for me. 
So I, I can't. So no, I don't. Whatever your whatever your question was, no, I don't think Emery. I, I don't think this is a good. You don't think Emery Fox? <laughs> I don't. I do not think Emery. Well, there's Fox. the reason why the Ghost Gambit fails in that aspect, and uh, you know, and I guess it took him getting his uh, fingers chopped off for him to actually have a. Oh yeah, a, that's a motivation so brutal. Later. Yeah. yeah, if he was a real one, he would have figured out a way to fuck their way out of that jam. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Scott thinks he could fuck a ghost so good they would stop haunting him. I bet I could. Let's get one. Let's get one in here. That's a good bonus episode idea. Wow. Uh, Final thing. (laughs) Um, Some of the... I bet I can make that ghost come twice. (laughs) Ectoplasm everywhere. Um, I'm I'm just just picturing Wampler... uh, Picture. This. I, I, well, I'm, I'm picturing. Picture it, baby. Talk to us. I, Tell me. So, so I, when, <laughs> I'm, I'm picturing the scene in MacGruber where he's fucking his his wife, and it cuts to people watching him, and he's just fucking air on top of a tombstone <laughs> <laughs> with his butt out. That that is, and he's just like going to town and be like, "You like that? You like that?" I promise that Mallory has never seen MacGruber. But <laughs> you are correct. I'm going to show you that scene. I'm going to. Oh, you, okay. you, you, you need to see so that particular funny. scene. Anyway, I have a final yes. question for the two of you. We've spent most of this episode talking about the. Besides when we talk about Alan and Sukina's Su- Su- relationship. Yes. We haven't really talked a lot about the events, uh, like the the. Ellen Rimbauer's storyline. Mm. There's a lot of fucking horrifying shit that happens. Not the least of which is the de- the father's best friend and ex-business partner coming in to uh, m- kill himself in front mm-hmm. of the children. Right. Like, I-, I would just lo- like to know what the two of you think about that, the- that whole storyline, wh- whether or not you think it was a strong element of the show. Well, that was another L- LGBTQ part of it, right? Because didn't mm-hmm. they say that, that he was like found he out as outed. being gay? He got outed as being gay and like his response was to like marinate with that for a year and then just go and give his hat to the to, to one of the children and said, hey, check this out and hang himself in, in front of him. It's a it's a really it's a fucked up scene. And it, it's one that that uh, it does kind of feel like it's a little bit out of left field in a good way where it's a it's a nice surprising like, holy shit, you know, of course, you're like, why did he because there's a lot of mystery to it. it's like, why did he wait so long? Why mm-hmm. did he do it in front of the kids? Like, why was he so happy about it? Was it a good thing? Was it a bad thing? It's uh, it, it's it's a really complicated and weird curveball that is thrown right in the middle of the fucking story. Once you think you kind of have it all figured out. I mean, I don't have an answer for, for like whether or not I, you know, there's a deeper meaning or, you know, ad- adding the, you know, the thematics of the story or anything there. But like, I, I do, I did register for me watching it going like, that's a real fucking wild curveball throw. Mm-hmm. Well, it's really interesting when you consider, you know, the house is the house because it's just bad. Just It's bad for the sake of being bad. It's bad on ground. It's bad ground. But they make a point to say quite a few times during the, during this each episode you know that the mm. men end up dead the men end up dead and the women disappear yeah. and um, it's really interesting when you're trying to ascribe any sort of motive to the house mm. and you know like one of the prominent characters that goes missing is april the daughter sukina eventually go- goes missing ellen herself goes missing and it 
kind of reminds you that, you know, th- those characters, even though they felt like they had some agency, had none, and it was still the house taking them, right. whether or not they wanted to be there. Hmm. Yeah, that was well, a question I had while watching it. We're at the two hour mark, so I'm not going to, you know, expand <laughs> on this too much. But there was there was a point I remember, like, I don't know, midway through or something. And I think I was maybe I was talking to Tony about it or I was talking to you, Mel, and I was just like, I don't know what the house wants exactly. And I feel like it hasn't really laid that out well hmm. enough. And it, eventually, I think. It, it does, you know, and you you get it. But um, it's kind of weird, given that you get a PowerPoint presentation right up at the top of this thing that, w- about the history of the house and so many flashbacks that you could get through that many of them and still not be entirely clear on like, OK, well, what e- what exactly is the dynamic here and what is the end game for the house? Um, I think that's strange. Hmm. Well, I think that's the that's the big problem is trying to give like the like, you know, in this series, the right. setting the house becomes so much of a character that you want to give it motivations. Yes, but at absolutely. the same time, King is very upfront about telling you that there's that's that that's it. This place is just a bad place. And I think sure. it's the women get trapped there and the men get killed. Maybe see in, that's in, the thing though. Like, don't you see like like I get the explanation of it's a bad house. It's a bad house. It's you bad think it's ground. a it's a house of misandry? No, I think it's, but, but that, it, that implies like that Methods? the house, the, the house has a plan that it, it, it looks as women differently than men. Why? Like the, it must have something to do with whatever the house is building towards. Right. Or like, you know, and, and whatever point that I was having that conversation, whether it was with you or somebody else, I was not, that had not been established yet. And so it was just kind of confusing. It was just like, so is, is it just a bad house? Like, if it's just a bad house, like, let's let's go that route. And I didn't feel I, I didn't feel clear. And whoever I was watching it with didn't mm. feel clear. I, like, I feel like if I had to choose, um, there's a line that has stuck with me through about in, in, in the like the prequel storyline that I still think about all the time. And I thought about ever since I was a teenager um, when they are in Africa. And mm-hmm. the woman gets some sort of STD and it's, she says that, you know, it's a disease that's carried, carried by men and suffered by women. If I yeah. had to choose, I think it's a, some sort of statement, some sort of musing on the way the different, especially during that time period, the different relationships that women have with houses and with men. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm speaking as a history writer here. This was a definitely, this was the Victorian times. This was a time when the domestic sp- sphere, the house was the domain of women, especially because it was really the only place where women were encouraged. They were not allowed in bars. They were generally almost, there were really, this was even before department stores. There was really no public place where women were welcomed. And the house, the home Mm. was really the only place that women could be and could be themselves Mm. whereas men Mm -hmm. could go outside they could go where literally wherever they wanted especially if they were white so women just fundamentally had such a massively different relationship with their homes than men did that's you know and really affluent couples like this one you know the wife was in charge of all the decorating that's why she was allowed to keep building as much as she wanted because that was the one place in the entire world where she had any sort of agency and any sort of power and so 
that's what I would I would guess is that it killed the men because it had no use for them. But women sure. had, had 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 a little bit of power, had had not just power, but m- so much more of a connection. Even little baby April, who was I, I don't know I don't know how old she is, like seven or eight or whatever, when she gets taken in the series. Mm-hmm. But women had just so much um, of a deeper connection to a house than the men did. Well, on that note, <laughs> um, I think we, and, and also on this runtime, we, we've got to bring this in for a landing. Um, yeah. Mallory, thank you so much for coming back and, uh, As always. And, and taking this title, you know, uh, uh, rescuing us from having to answer where's a rose red episode ever again. Now we have one. Recorded. <laughs> Thanks for giving it to me. I've had, again, I've had dibs on this for so long. Yeah. <laughs> Tell the people where to find you. Oh man, I'm barely on anything these days. Um, mm-hmm. well, you want to find out? On Reddit. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> 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 um, if you want to find out anything about what's going on with me, book wise, go to MalloryOmero.com. I keep that very, very regularly updated. Um, if you want to listen to me talk about books and more haunted house stuff, you can listen to my podcast, Reading Glasses, which comes out every Thursday on Maximum Fun, available on wherever you find this fucking podcast. Um, you can the buy gutter. my books. What? The gutter. <laughs> the gutter. <laughs> the gutter. Um, you can find my books really anywhere um, that you find that you find books. I always recommend getting them from your library or your local independent bookstore, but you can find them anywhere. Um, if for some sick reason you're one of those people that listens to the show with your children or you have children, um, my first kids book girls make movies came out this year it's the world's first book on filmmaking aimed directly at young girls and it is i believe to be the world's first choose your own adventure styled nonfiction book so if you have a kid in your life who loves movies likes making videos loves tiktok and is very interested in in the movie industry in general it's a great thing to get for them it's illustrated by my pal the wildly talented artist jen vaughn very very proud of it and even though i'm a filth monster on this show i promise you there's not a single swear in it um other than that yeah i'm not on social media too much anymore i'm my instagram i still look at every once in a while um and also if you're a fountain pen nerd you can catch me every wednesday and sunday streaming on twitch under ink witches well we encourage everyone to do all of those things and you know uh please come back in time for uh your your next book okay promise yeah promise i wish we could announce the name of it or do something fun that would be cool. Yeah. Well, let's talk. We'll figure out something. <laughs> yeah. We'll figure also, out. Also, folks, listen to fucking Shelbyville. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. On the yep, KingCast Patreon, that's patreon.com backslash the KingCast. You're going to want to get in that $10 tier, folks. Listen folks, to the. This new... second season gets so bonkers. Oh my God, you won't believe the stuff that happens. It's so much you fun. You were recently revealed as a gunslinger. Your your character, Crystal, is a gunslinger in the new season. Folks, you have to listen to that episode because the the excitement, the electricity between all of us and mm-hmm. with me and Jacob especially in that moment is so real. No one yeah. knew what was happening besides Jacob. And it is probably one of my favorite moments we've ever recorded because it's <laughs> so genuine. And it is a wild season. There are... Some very unexpected twists and turns, yeah. and that um, yeah, that's just the tip of the iceberg of what what's coming. Yeah. All so, right, yeah, sign up, and uh, yeah, thanks, Mal. It's always uh, great to have you on the show, and you know, we'll see you later. We'll talk I love again you guys. Soon. Have me back. We love you too. 
Many thanks to the one, the only, Miss Mallory O'Mara for finally putting this Rose Red episode to bed. Yes, and in such a satisfying way. We were talking about this episode uh, last night or the night before, and I I was saying, like, this is about, like, the the platonic ideal of a KingCast episode, Mm. right? Like, it's not it's not too chaotic. It's 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 funny, but it's got a lot of information packed into it. You and I learned some stuff in the process. Mm -hmm. The guest was well prepared. It's, you know, every once in a while. Actually, somewhat uh, a couple of times recently, we've we've run into these sort of guests. I'm not yeah. surprised that Mallory was one of them, but um, I'm glad that we were able to so thoroughly cover this title right, right off the bat. You know, hell yeah, yeah. And I got an excuse to pull out the ballpark uh, gauge getting hit by the truck horn again. So <laughs> that's true. Yeah, it's got everything. This is a, a real kitchen sink episode, but yes. uh, the potpourri of Kinkass episodes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so let's talk about next week. We have another banger next week. Uh, we've been kind of in the habit of just dropping who the guest is, so I think I'm going to keep that up. Uh, we are tackling a uh, a short story called Ur. You are. Uh, unlike the uh, the recent episode on Alan's penis, uh, this one's a real short story, and yes. you may remember it as being a little controversial when it came out because this was the story that King released exclusively to the Kindle right when the Kindle came out. It's a it's a pretty crazy story, very Dark Tower related story about a magic Kindle that can read books from other uh, dimensions. Mm-hmm. And our guest to walk us through this story is none other than our favorite buckaroo, Mr. Chuck Tingle. Yes. Uh, is there anything you want to tell the people about this episode to tease them for, for next week? Um, it's not a it's not a uh, super long episode. We just recorded this one uh, earlier today mm-hmm. when we're recording this. I know that our time is different than your time. But uh, <laughs> while you're hearing this, we, we just just recorded this and I don't know, maybe 90 before edit something like that you know so it's uh it's pretty compact but man it really fucking runs the gamut we (laughs) we somehow off the off the spine of ur we end up talking about metal country music fucking um new technologies that we are either reluctant or refuse to use (laughs) uh the the morality of um you know, uh, uh, plagiarizing from yourself. If yourself, your other self is a clone. Mm-hmm. I mean, it goes in some wild ass directions. And also you're going to get some dark tower talk in there. You get Chuck being Chuck through the, the entire thing. It's, uh, I love talking to that guy. He's just fascinating. Yeah. He's, he's, a he's a wonderful guest, a wonderful person. Uh, it's, it's a, I think it's very much like this road to red episode where we kind of, seem to go off on tangents that were quasi related, but like somehow always circled back to the, to the subject at hand. It it was one of those where it just was kind of a natural, nice, easy conversation. Uh, And I'm really excited for everybody to listen to it next week. It's really fun. Uh, Do you want to tell the people what uh, is in store on our Patreon? It's the latest episode of Shelbyville, is it not? It is episode three. Right. Excellent. Yes. Episode three of Shelbyville. That's our actual play Stephen King themed RPG uh, with, you know, I guess this is a good um, uh, match of bonus episode and main feed episode. Miss yeah. Mallory O'Mara, Mr. Jacob Hall, and then Mr. Wampler and myself. Uh, we are up, up to our shenanigans in 1990s Maine as uh, a bunch of 
shitty little roughhouse kids and uh, mm-hmm. and way over our heads. We've dealt with a, a masked slasher in the woods at a summer camp. Yep. We've been chased by random clouds, nope style. Yep. That, um, turn out to be, uh, well, you don't need to worry about that. They, um, <laughs> they're very, very spooky. Uh, yes, robot fucking demon dogs. Uh, this particular season is, I don't know, it, it rapidly accelerates everything that was happening in the first season. And we've still got 10 more episodes to go. Um, yeah. it, is, it is a, I'm, re- I'm really proud of the work that we put into this season, not only because it took us so goddamn long to do it. But I think we've really grown into our characters now and we're doing like real shit with them, especially in the back uh, half of this season. So lots of emotion, lots of crazy scenarios dreamed up by uh, by Jacob and uh, and then our our banter, which has only grown uh, with our characters, as as Scott said. So, yes. And you're going to get no less than two very special guests. Uh, over the course of the season, um, one of whom we're recording the absolute finale of season two with tonight. And then season two will finally be put to bed. And yes. uh, if you're wondering, that's not where this ends. We've also got a plan in place for season three where things are going to be really wild. And um, I don't know, maybe maybe if uh, everything goes according to plan, there'll be a live Shelbyville event sometime next year. I love the hints. I love the hints. They're, they're the best. Um, great. So I guess we'll see y'all next week for Chuck Tingle taking on Ur. Ur? I think Ur. Ur. Ur? Yeah, Ur. You are. Uh, whatever that that translates into, however you pronounce that. Uh, that is what we were tackling. And if you haven't read it, uh, it can be found in the Bizarre Bad Dreams. And, uh, so catch up with it if you haven't. And, uh, I guess we'll see all of our Shelbyville fans, uh, this Friday for episode three. See you then, folks. Bye. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Andley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly. <laughs>